Tonight, meet the twisted genius of Edgar Allan Poe. Experience a terrifying tale of druid witchcraft and the scream that kills. Cry of the Banshee. American International presents new heights in horror never before filmed. Vincent Price stars in this new adventure in Terror and Torture. Don't miss Cry of the Banshee. You'll learn to fear it. Rated GP. bop down the road <laughs> um we're going we're going where are we going i don't know where are we going where are we going oh. are we in the mood to do this we're we're gonna take a nap now. <laughs> it's been a late it's been a late one it's been a late one not that we i guess that sounds bad that we're not in the mood but it's just we're tired it's, it's a tiring day sun's coming up already I know it was a late. It was a late night. We we went way down the alley. But what's exciting is that we're continuing our month. We are long Halloween horror extravaganza. Or homage. We're working. We're we're working we're overtime. Paying, paying homage. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're working overtime during the week so that we have time to to be able to do this. So we're working double shifts. I know. I don't know how, because most, I, I, I don't know. It seems like a lot of podcasts are once a week, but we have trouble getting together for yeah, sleepovers once a week. Once so. a month we get prob- have problems, <laughs> let alone twice. How do you, I guess you're right, people, people do do once a week. See, everybody, but most people, everybody. you know, most people are just doing it. You know, we have to have a sleepover. We do so, have, so we have parameters. Our schedules yeah. have to have to line up. You know? And I had to get a new sleeping bag because that GI Joe sleeping <laughs> bag was just falling apart. We used to, I used to have this. Uh, I don't know. You probably have seen it. It was like this green, like an army green sleeping bag. Seen yours? Yeah, I've seen that one. And but it's this weird material. That I don't even know if you can like wash it. It's some like weird like windbreaker material <laughs> that's funny it's like and i've had it ever since like as long as i can remember don't tell probably, you've never washed it i'm sure it must i'm sure my mom that's what you say it, moms but. know how to wash everything i would just ask my mom how do i wash this and she'll tell you what to do all right just put it in by itself and put like a you know this in or that and don't put it on light and delicate it's amazing what can be washed i know how do moms know how do they know <laughs> how do they that could be another cast how do moms know <laughs> Um, I guess maybe it's just experience. They fuck things up. And they're like, shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, I make a note. <laughs> yeah. Don't watch it like that again. And it's like, you know, the kids, you're, you're just too young to remember. And your dad just forgets about it after a week. So it's like, oh, well, you know, um, we're going way down the alley. We're going further down the alley than we've ever been. Possibly further down the alley than we'll ever go. Yes. <laughs> we're going so down the alley that, that we've, we've hit the brick wall and we're, we're, we're analyzing the bricks. There's not much further to go down this no. alley. I mean, I guess I mean, we, we could, could conceptually we could. go. We Hell. could go further. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I'm not sure we. I'm not go. sure we ever will, though. Uh, but this will be fun for us because it really it it's it it takes us to a simpler time. It's it's it's, it's the old days. It's fun. We, well, I kind of hinted at it last on our last Halloween cast. Yeah, the the blob. Whereas, like, this is a very different kind of sleepover. Movie, yeah, yeah, you, you know? did, and, and I agree with you. You alluded to that it being, it's not so much, it can be once you get a, I guess, a, a, um, a liking to it, but this is kind of one of these ones you stumble upon to, yeah. which much like how I 
stumbled upon the older stuff. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's um, not so much that you would go to the store and rent this movie. No. Like a lot of the other movies, but it is one that, like, on a late Friday night, Saturday night, you, midnight movie. Yeah. You know, you're flipping through the channels. And you find, like, Dr. Creepo. And he's, <laughs> and he's up there doing, like, one of those creature features. Zachary or... Yeah. Or uh, uh, Svengulli. Svengulli. You know, this is one of them. And, and you know, it's, it's a shame that as you and I get older, people seem to, you know, forget these, these older pictures. And it's, it's nice to be able to... To well, dip you know, back you, and... you hear about, uh, you often hear about filmmakers like George Romero and like that generation of filmmakers talking about how like the Universal movies were one reissued in theaters several times, had more had you know like repeat runs, yeah, when they were younger, but also you know got were shown on television a lot when they were little, so a lot of their love for horror came out of All these kind movies. of this era of horror, and you think about like. A guy like George Romero or John Carpenter, you know, like they weren't having, you know, movie sleepovers when they no. were little the way we were. So like their only real chance of having a movie sleepover was, was catching something cool on television. And I think it's 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 something that needs to be noted that you th- we take it for granted now in, in our... I guess we take it for granted even through our childhood, but there was a time when a movie would go into the theater... And if you didn't see it on that first run, and maybe if you had the 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 chance to see it in the second run, it would go away. You never see it again. Yeah, and then you'd be have to wait. Maybe if you were lucky, it would show up on TV at some point. Yeah, and then, but then even before that, and then when you get into TV, then you know a lot of studios you'd realize get, you'd get as you know what we're fans of, which like again, a revival or well, again, you would only if you missed the airing of it, you would have like the shortened radio play. Oh yes, like yeah, reenactment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Radio plays and sometimes by the same actors. Yeah, because radio was a huge, and that's a huge other uh, thing that people realize today don't realize that there was this huge medium of radio prior to television that was freaking phenomenal and you can go and find it online it's all free you can find this stuff and it's like great view like of viewing listening material yeah you know on a night or whatever just it's it's so good how it just encapsulates the mind because it just makes you th- it's almost sometimes better than television or movies because you you're yeah. creating it all in your mind but uh, you know, once TV came about, then I guess these studios realized that, oh, my God, we can replay stuff. So that's when I guess they kind of opened their vaults. But you're right. It's weird that, you know, well, us growing up, videos, we can. Yeah, yeah. You know, or we, as we've, we, uh, you know, as our listeners know, like we're a big uh, proponent of the novelization. We love novelization. So that was also like really. The way, yeah, to relive it, the experience. And past like 40, in the past the 40s, they started releasing the audio scores. As like vinyl LPs, yeah, and so I was like those, like a, like a like the book, like a novelization, and the movie soundtrack were yeah. like the only ways that you could like relive the magic yeah. of your favorite movies. You go home you and you play it. with it, and then maybe uh, sometimes you get it in some sort of like uh, children's form where they'd either serialize it through comic strips or maybe through like shorts you'd see at the theater. Or uh, some sort of reading material, like you're saying. So that was, you know, that's the only way you can follow your your character. But we're going way back to to, to like 1935 here. It was a good uh, year. It was a very good year for Actually, a lot of reasons. Probably wasn't a good year. It wasn't um, like during the depression. It was during the depression, and yeah, Hitler was on the move. He just got gained the power, and he. Was, There's been worse years, but it yeah, was probably it was, not a great year. Yeah, I guess for the majority of the public, but you know, I guess in the sense of, and you know, the war hadn't hit yet, so maybe you know, 38, 39 when he invaded Poland, Hitler. So we're still in that kind of time of we're trying to get out of the depression, but we're doing this year, uh, this year, this uh, cast, we're doing Mad Love. 
uh, a very underrated movie, which I didn't even really know about until uh, I discovered it through our love, our mutual love of Peter Lorre. Yeah, yeah. And, and then um, I think you introduced me to it. I think the first time I ever saw it anyway, we watched it together. Oh, did we? Oh, did we? <laughs> yes. Yes, uh, we did. And probably a sleepover as well. Yeah, it was you know? a sleepover, actually. We watched that, and it was the box set that you had, and it had that... Uh, it's a beautiful box maybe set. Maybe the bat? It was some... It was some uh, yeah, well... The, it was a Bela Lugosi movie, the, where the, he's kind of... Mark of the Vampire. Mark of the Vampire. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think it's the only other time he played... Uh, he doesn't play Dracula, but he plays a vampire, and then there's a big twist in the movie, which I don't want to give away, but... Uh, the box set, which we can get into at the end of the cast, but it was called Hollywood Legends of Horror Collection, and it came out, I think, like 2006, and it has uh, maybe about five movies on it, and this is one of the movies. And a friend of mine, uh, Brian Lanano, um, he introduced me to it, the box set, and I was like, oh, crap, because prior to that, you really couldn't get this movie. And uh, like you said, this is one of those things where like, I remember growing up... Uh, you know, probably about seven years old, around Halloween, uh, one of the local channels did like a night of horror, and it was one of these freaking yeah. creature features where oh, yeah. they just did, you know, all the probably universal, I think it was like, Dra- they played in probably chronological order, so I had Dracula, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, maybe the Mummy, Wolfman, and then I think at that point they threw in like one of the Frankenstein meat Wolfman's with, and so that point Frankenstein's played like uh, by Victor Strange, maybe or Hugo Strange. I forget the, the actor's yeah. name. Not even Lon Chaney Jr. because he's playing yeah, yeah. Boris uh, Wolfman. And that was the first time I saw, yeah, you know, the Universal. I think a lot of those Universal movies, for me, which is funny because this isn't a Universal movie. But, no, no, but, but it's, it's but of the era. era. Um, a lot of the a lot of that early horror stuff, I would see on TV kind of probably in the same fashion but also I remember a lot of them being on PBS yeah like whatever the local PBS affiliate was like I saw uh, Phantom of the Opera with Lon Chaney on PBS for the first time I think I saw Frankenstein they aired it on PBS um well, it's like when they pride of them. Oh, they still do but like showing you yeah yeah I mean other older movies first time I ever saw my mom loved the movie The African Queen Mm. I mean watched that on uh Philadelphia PBS Channel Twelve, Channel mm. Twelve, as people in the in the Philadelphia area will know yeah, it. Yeah. It's not PBS in, in Philadelphia; it's Channel Twelve. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so a lot of those older movies, because you know, like there was like at my mom's house, we didn't have a VCR, so watching movies. You were kind of forced to watch whatever. Yeah, was like whatever was on television yeah. was what we watched. And at the time, know? we only had it was you old didn't school. have cable, like we <laughs> talked about. Yeah, and I didn't have cable or a VCR at my mom's house. So you uh, were kind of forced to watch the 13, 14, 15 channels that were gotten over the aerial. It wasn't antenna. even that many, man. Yeah. back then, I, I, I mean, Philadelphia had quite a few. Um, I want to say there was like seven or eight. Wow. Uh, Albany, when I moved there, Albany area had even less. Yeah. So, I, I guess I was kind of um, uh, lucky in the fact that young, we, we, we got cable and we had like HBO home box too. Yeah. And then in my parents' room, which I had watched TV too, that we had off the, the antenna. But uh, these are the kind of movies that would be showed back then. And um, I think everybody, I hope, I think our audiences know Frankenstein, Wolfman, Bride of Frankenstein, all those great universal. That was amazing. You know. But, you know, and this is on, uh, another thing I'd like to set up because the reason why I was really excited to go back so far down the alley is that we actually are lucky enough to have with us a professor of horror. <laughs> You've taught. No, I know, but I'm not I'm not, uh, you know, t- tickling your balls about yeah. it. But I mean, you know, 
you have a knowledge of this and it's like I was going to propose the question to you of like what film do you think kind of brought us into the modern horror era and then era not era yeah. and then think of okay let's talk prior to that yeah, and like yeah. all the you know that people really don't know well there's a couple of, of points uh you know you bring up you know for those that don't no, I mean, I, I think we allude to it a lot, but there was like three or four years where I taught. Oh, you know what? Welcome to Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. I'm Dion Bai. You're Jay Blake. And I'm Jay Blake. Yeah, okay. Get that out of the way. And it's uh, a late Saturday night. <laughs> it's so late that we forgot to introduce ourselves. Yeah. Um, there was like three or four years there where I taught uh, college courses on, on film history, and I taught horror class three or four semesters and I taught a comedy class one time. So that's kind of what Dion's referring to. And it was kind of ideal... Uh, it was ideal casting because I'm such a hard nerd to begin yeah, with. Yeah. So, um, about the Universal movies, you talk about how, uh, before I get to answer your question, you talk about how you think everybody knows. And I think that's what's fascinating about those movies, those Universal horror movies, those movies of the 30s. I mean, we're talking about, that's a long fucking time ago. Yeah. But, like, if you said to somebody, probably even, I don't know about little kids because they might not know about it yet, but eventually they will. If you said to somebody, Frankenstein. Yeah. Some dude with their pants down to their knees, they're going to know. The image that they're going to see in their head. Is Boris Karloff. Is Boris Karloff. It's weird. I saw some kid, again, some dude on the train with really tight pants. Evidently now kids wear pants really low and really tight. They paint them on. Yeah, they paint them on, (laughs) and you could see it, and they just want to highlight their boxers. And uh, he's there, and he's listening to those Beats by Dre headphones, and I have my headphones on, and I can hear his headphones over my headphones. But he's wearing a Boris Karloff Frankenstein shirt. And I want to like stop and be like, do you know who that is? Can you name that actor, you yeah. son of a bitch? But it's you know? such an iconic image. And it's tri- it's crazy to think how that image has transcended yeah, it's, time. It's part of our, like, it, you know, the, the, it's part of the cultural lexicon. Now. Like, it's when just, we were young, there was, like, a Twix commercial that had, yeah. <laughs> like, that Frankenstein. Yeah, I mean, that was, yeah, they, they, would, they would openly market. I think they've gotten away now with the re- revival of, like, Teeny Bop Vampire. You know, they've kind of made everything young now. Yeah, yeah. But when we were little, they would still market the Bela Lugosi-esque yeah. vampire. That's another one. Bela Lugosi as, even if, like, like, if you were little and you went as Dracula for Halloween. Yeah, your parents would probably dress you up. That's what you... You dressed like Bela Lugosi. Yeah, you get, like, the cape and you kind of get your hair, like, in the uh, Eddie Munster with the little point. And then, you know, that would be... And you know, white teeth or white... And with the, with the, yeah. with the My point, point is that those movies are, like, almost 90 years old. And I wonder if people... And have, they are so ingrained in pop culture... That like I mean like if you went outside movies you talk you know like even a little kid you 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 say who is Houdini and likely people will know who you're talking about and that's the guy that hasn't been alive for like hundred years for yeah, hundred yeah, years yeah. you know there's just certain things that just captured the imagination and capture like the consciousness of of you know, like mankind in such a weird way. And I wonder if they, I mean, I guess they wouldn't even know him, but it's just, isn't that kind of like a lot of these people, you know, we talk about Peter Lorre, what we'll get to, and Bela yeah. Lugosi, they've had such horrible lives. And I think the only real good person who kind of gotten out of that was probably Boris Karloff. But like, you know, a lot of these people died either broke or in, in, in like financial or mental troubles. And it's just like, 
I hope that's some sort of vindication for them to know that like now that they're so iconic that you can just, you know, slap their poster on a wall and people are going to know kind of what, who they are. Oh, exactly. Um, I mean, we had, I mean, even in the 80s, we had toys that were, so we have like a Karloff. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's you so know, like weird. Figure, like, I mean, and that stuff's all, you know, it's it's also copyrighted now. The Jack Pierce makeup, the universe, yeah, yeah. the universal, so that, you know, that's why with the Hammer movies, they had to try to, like, deviate away from that iconic look. Yeah. Uh, I hope people out there have seen these movies because yeah. I think if you're a horror fan, like, you know, a lot of people I find too as well, which is a dirty secret people don't want to mention, is that some people have an aversion to black and white. Yeah, yeah, and I've talked to people who are like my age who are like, I won't watch a black and white movie. I'm like, you're well, you're a fucking idiot, <laughs> you know. And I, and, and I, I don't, and I, there's, I'm not going to make any qualms about it. There's no reason why just because it's devoid of color, you don't want to watch the movie. I, mean, I know people that are like into horror movies, but they won't like watch a horror movie like earlier than 1980. That's what I mean. And it's like some of the. That's why I was so excited to do I'm this another, cast. Like, screw color. I mean, I'm talking about like <laughs> the golden age of like American yeah, like, like independent horror was the fucking 70s, and they won't watch any 70s. And it's like there's some movies like there's like this movie, Mad Love. It's like it's so good, and it's so long ago, and yeah. it's like it's it's amazing that these things were. And then you think of the audience that it was at- intended for. These people were like, they had uh, you know the, the the naivete of like a five year old. So them seeing this is like completely horrifying yeah, yeah. to them. I guess my only point <clears throat> is that, um, that these movies. You know, not specifically Mad Love, because that's a little more obscure. But my point is that, like... It's a B-side. It's that... <laughs> yeah, Mad Love is definitely a B-side to some of these other movies. Which a lot of people aren't even going to understand that reference. Yeah. Well, if you point. get it, fair play to you if you got that <laughs> reference. Uh, it's just that, like, they're, in a way... They they might have come out in the 1930s, but in a way, they're, like, as relevant today as, yeah. they, as they were then. And that's, like, my only point. And they set up... You know what? A lot of the 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 the, the themes and and the, uh, the I guess the tropes that you see now, like a lot a lot of that was begotten out of these movies. Yeah, um, specifically, there's you know this movie, well, uh, what Mad you, Love in particular. But to answer your question, yeah, yeah, see this baby back on track. Uh, it's a big wheel. So I would a big say, turn. and it's a movie that I had seen when I was younger. So, so my question on to you, PBS, my question to you was, what do you think ushered in? Uh, I guess how like, many what's eras the turning of, point movie of like what we would what we would consider modern horror yeah. versus, uh, and I'm sure if you want to go and like uh, micromanage, there's probably various. Yeah, you, you could know, pick you know, a thirties, but 50s, I'll pick one specific seventies. One film that coincidentally I watched on PBS for the first time, which we were just talking about. It happens to be black and white, but I feel like it is like the real turning point. And it's not a film, to be honest, that I have come to really fully appreciate until. Somewhat recently, mm. I think that, I know what this is. But I, in full disclosure, I don't know what you're going to pick. But I think I know what it is. I think it's Hitchcock's Psycho. I thought you were going to say that. I think you're right. Now there, we saw a film when we were in film school, and it was a film that I completely fucking fell in love with. Which I think we're going to we'll get to at do, some yeah. point. But it's a it's another it's a pretty obscure one. Uh, it was a, a film by uh, Michael Powell called Peeping, Peeping Tom. Tom. Fifty nine. No, sixty. But only three months before. Psycho. Oh, I thought it was fifty nine. Okay, so it's yeah, it's it, but it, it predates Psycho. It by predates a couple Psycho. Months. We talked about it a little bit when we did the thing, I believe, Cast. the podcast, because it fucking ruined Michael Powell's career. And he was another guy that had this such a weird history where he was like a spy, wasn't he? Like a, a part uh, the, of the, right, the writer, the writer, the guy was, who wrote the screenplay uh, was uh, during was, the war. was a spy during World War Two. But my so like. That came out just before Psycho. Psycho is the one that made a big deal. They deal with similar uh, 
uh, subject matter, and I just instantly fell in love with Peeping Tom. So there was a good, there was a, like a thing there, or like in my in my uh, immature, you know, we were young then, uh, being a bit immature, like I chose sides. Yeah. You know, and like Peeping Tom was my movie, and Psycho was okay, but fuck Psycho. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Peeping Tom was. Okay. But in recent years, I've come to like fully appreciate how amazing Psycho is, and um, you. I guess one could argue that it's not a horror movie; it's a thriller. But I don't think so. I think there's. Well, you can even argue this movie isn't necessarily Mad Love is not necessarily yeah. a horror movie per se. It's a thriller, but I think that's a gray area. But um, basically. Psycho starts to usher in this idea of like the psychological, like a very Freudian concept of you know the internal conflict. Yeah, of, like the, of, the monster doesn't have to be in makeup; he could be that. And it, and it's taking away, which even in the '60s, uh, Corman was still doing with all these like Poe movies. Roger but, Corman, but you know, and you could say that like creature from the black lagoon yeah. is technically like contemporary for its time but for the most part horror was like this very gothic yeah very like, german expression then it was very like they took place in, in europe in year they were very european and it was like castles well see it's stuff. see it's so weird to to get into the history of all that but uh i guess it's so weird to 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 think of uh uh, Peeping Tom failing so miserably and then Psycho doing so well probably just because it had Hitchcock's name on it. And Hitchcock Hitchcock's a- name is part of it and it was and it's brilliant. I mean, yeah. so like I'm saying, like now I, I love Psycho as much as I love Peeping Tom. Yeah. But Peeping Tom pushed the boundary a little too hard. And, and it's, it's for the day. What's interesting about all that is that uh, people, and certainly with this movie, people aren't necessarily... Um, don't think it's a bad movie, but instead they take the the avenue that it's it's actually such a horrifying and like almost pornography or pornographic yeah. movie of, of its depiction of gore and violence that that's why it's bad or it should be banned. So they're not saying, oh, this is a, a steaming pile of shit because it's it's not a good film. They're just saying it's dealing with a a subject matter that we don't yet want to deal yeah. with. Yeah, Peeping Tom know? was is uncomfortable. And that's a perfect that's a perfect example. And funny Tom. enough, Peeping Tom. Even though made the same year, maybe because it's made in England and we're used to like an American sensibility and even though Kitchcock was English, he, Psycho was made in America. Even though, and, and Peeping Tom's color, to me, Psycho feels way more contemporary than Peeping, Peeping Tom. Tom does. Which, yeah. is, which is interesting. I wonder, yeah, right, maybe because it, it had like... So a, that's no. another reason why I would pick Psycho Because Hitch, Hitch has been it in... It feels so modern. Like it feels like... Aside from like the cars and like the style, um, it just it feels of today. I, I, it just it has a feeling. It's undescribable. I wonder if it's because Hitch has been in the the country for twenty years or so. But then and, you're right. It's so modern that they've even just rebooted and they have a there's a on on arts and entertainment A and E. There's a Bates Motel TV show, which is yeah, you know yeah. after how many years is that? Freaky fifty years. They've now finally made like a... And it's a spun off of the movie, which the movie is made of out of a book. Oh, Robert book, Block, yeah. But yeah. the book is very different. Yeah, and the book the, is based off of uh, Ed Gaines. This is loosely inspired by, yeah. by Ed Gaines, uh, who's considered a serial killer, but I still don't know. I still have... 
Yeah, he only killed a, problems uh, with that. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's he's also only where known as of killing like two people. But. Yeah, and he's just, he's just more of just dealing with d- digging people up, and it, that's very much source material for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. Um, but this is like we're talking about Mad Love today, and that's the reason. Like Mad Love basically helped ban horror movies in England for for almost a decade because of people couldn't deal with this. That along with uh, the Raven that came out from Universal, and. Uh, I don't know. Where do you want to steer this thing? Where do you think we should talk about Peter Lorre or talk about the movie? It's well, I mean, MGM so, you, so you posed this this question, and I guess we're just talking about that being like a turning point of Psycho. So if we look at horror before that, you know, and, you know, we're talking about Mad Love is 25 years earlier. Yeah. So, um, but horror has a very particular niche there has a very particular thing during that time it starts to get a little bit quote-unquote like more contemporary because then in the 50s we started to get like the sci-fi aspects of it which we talk about in the blob a little bit our cast about the 80s blob remake but um well there was such a backlash for these kind of movies with mad love helped usher in that studios kind of like kind of abandoned the idea of doing horrors for a good amount of years until they started doing what we were saying is they started some guy had the idea of just renting all the old prints and just doing like um, revivals and theaters and people and then the studio saw how much money this this guy was making and they're like shit we should start clocking out some more and that's where you get like uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon and the Advent Costello meet Frankenstein in the 50s but there was a time where these these movies just got so uh, uncomfortable for viewers that 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 not only did viewers and critics pan it that that the studios were like you're right we can't make this this is too uncomfortable and they went completely the other way yeah and will, we're talking about Universal but Mad Love is an MGM movie it's an MGM movie yeah but um, okay I think if we put I think we need to set the table a little bit in terms of time period because yeah. it's the time period I mean of any era of of art not just filmmaking. Um, like the 70s is very the horror movies in the 70s filmmaking in the 70s in general but if you're going to look at horror as a genre it's very um, telling of the time yeah and because the 60s into the 70s is a very turbulent time in American history yeah. and go figure <laughs> so we're talking about 30s we're talking this movie comes out in 1935 horror becomes a very big genre in the 30s with Frankenstein and blah blah blah. Before that, we have all the, like the silent Lon Chaney movies. Yeah, we have what's going on in Europe um, with Nosferatu and the Cabinet of Doctor Caligari, which the whole German expressionism thing is plays a, such a huge part. What we have to put into perspective is all that is coming out of the First World War. Yeah, like that's coming out of like probably the most brutal. It was the war to end all wars. I mean, we, we invented things that we thought would stop with a machine gun, all that kind of stuff. It was, was like, the, it was you know, mustard gas. Yeah, it was a fucking would, ugly... Yeah, and there, people never seen that. And then when and then you have soldiers coming back. No, the, and that's the other thing. is like the technology that made that war so destructive, on the other end of, the, of technology advancements, made a lot of those soldiers survive it. Yeah. Which normally wouldn't have. Yeah. So we have a lot of uh, 
people coming up with deformities. Deformities, without legs, without limbs. Faces. You know, face. So horror is coming out of, like, you look at, like, uh, I guess Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. Uh, Lon Chaney Sr., yeah. Like, the mask he wears is, like, people would wear shit like that. Which is different than today's, you know, you everyone thinks of Phantom of the Opera, you think of... Uh, Sir like the, Andrew Lloyd Webber, yeah, yeah. you know the musical, and he's kind of they kind of half, mask. yeah they they've kind of modernized it with the half mask to make him slightly seductive. Yeah, but the original Lon Chaney, which I think also a testament to freaking Lon Chaney Senior, that that's still kind of an iconic kind of a look to a certain extent that that image. Oh and, yeah, you know, and, and he, he did all that the makeup and oh, stuff himself. That's I mean, a whole that, different cast true. entirely, but that's just. Literally amazing. And if he had lived, he died of lung cancer like 1930. I think he ended up only doing one sound picture. He was supposed to play like Frankenstein and Dracula, but yeah, he just yeah. couldn't. Uh, so it's it's amazing. Like you're saying, we have the silent era, and then uh, once World War One s- finishes, people have kind of got it with the American Civil War. But you know, now war is you know with the advent of photography and motion picture photography, yeah. people are able to see. It's like bringing the war home, and it's no longer something that you hear about where your son or father or brother goes off and comes back, and he relays the horrors for you. And people start to see like what shell shock is, or you know, um, uh, yeah, be, you know, all the different things that we're seeing nowadays that that have all these terms for. So in the in the twenties, you start getting still in the silent era, you start getting these movies that are very horrific, and I guess. Well, we're talking about like Todd Browning's Freaks, yeah, and which is like depicts obviously people with like birth defects, but also like a guy with no limbs and stuff. I mean, it's very you have to imagine like a viewer of that time that this is this is uh, imagery that is not weird or foreign to them. It's frightening in a very real way. Yeah, and then and coming stuff out, they of, want to push away from like you know a lot of times people with disabilities you just institutionalize them. Yeah. They want to get so it's almost like it's the Victorian ideology of you know we don't have to deal with it so we're gonna just you know we're gonna be so above it we don't even want to have to you know sit down and deal with that those those issues. Plus at the same time coming out of World War 1 where Germany got fucking spanked. Yeah, they, yeah, they got fucked with you the know. Treaty of Versailles and all that. You got this era of them like the, you know it's like inherent poverty, they Let's owe money put it this all over way. the place. Germany was in such bad shape that they were willing to let Hitler Come to power, rise yeah. to power, <laughs> yeah. Well, because he blamed everybody else. He was able yeah. to blame the, the Jewish people. He was blame everybody else, and you had that core of people who felt like, yeah, the foreigners here, you know, and and and, and I guess the 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 one they really stuck it to were the look at the Jewish people. They're making money on our backs. Look how much a loaf of bread is. And he was really able in the late twenties and early thirties to capitalize on that. And then he, you know, got the power. I think like thirty four or thirty five is when when he became like the chancellor and like. He was able to, you know, you talk about being a genius of, of being able to control, like, crowds. Yeah. He was able to just be an orator. Uh, but for cinema, you have, I think, even though... So, th- but, I mean, my point is, like, Germany is in such a bad way that, it, like, as a, as a movement comes this very dark, shadowy um, art form, which yeah. is German Expressionism. Which is... And hard- that's where horror is really... I mean, in in a way, you could say that like Nosferatu and Dr. Caligari are like the turning point of like, well, they maybe s- not modern horror, but then what becomes known as like horror f- before Psycho? Yeah, see, I, I find it weird because people will cite, I mean, 
we know there there is an earlier version of Frankenstein that's like in the teens yeah, that they Edison. did. Edison. Yeah, Edison did. But then some people cite uh, maybe even historians as Dr. Calgari being kind of the first horror movie. And I think, does that predate Nosferatu, I guess? Cause there are other silent horror movies. Um, you know, some of them are lost to time. I forget, like... Uh, that's another thing that people Milliez. don't realize. Oh. Uh, he made... There's one that's like involves a castle and skeletons. A lot of, like, the gothic yeah. uh, imagery that we kind of take for granted as being very horror-related, actually you know, comes up even before German Expressionism. But German Expressionism takes it and makes a visual style out of it that is so striking that it takes the world by storm. And not to mention, we're talking about the wars. The reason why that style comes to America... Because everyone's escaping the It's because everybody... Because all the artists there, all the, like, the cinematographers, the directors, they're like, this fucking Hitler guy's nuts. Yeah, and he's going to fucking take us to war and... Let's go to know, America. Yeah, they, they And they go come to, here and they bring their style to America and that's what becomes, like, the style of yeah. horror. And sadly, America. a lot of them get kind of relegated to these shit kind of lives because say in you know when they're in germany or austria or wherever they they're, they're you know they're the people know them as the jack nicholson's or the steven spielberg's of their time there and then when they come over here you know american yeah. audiences don't know who the hell they are conrad who yeah so they're kind of like <laughs> they're kind of yeah they're kind of relegated to these bit parts where you know you get people like the uh the actor um uh sz sulkel who um, we know as the like the bartender or the the, the waiter in uh, Casablanca? You know yeah. he's a very lovable guy. who shows up in a bunch of movies, but like you get these really good, good, good actors who you know at best they can only get well, character even roles. Veidt. Yeah, I mean he comes and he's you know he plays like a, a decent part, but a supporting part in Casablanca. Yeah, he, and yeah, stuff and that's like probably that. the only thing people. But know he's him like of. the star of the the movie, the that original, this, the one that this yeah, movie this, is based this, on. This, mo- this movie, Mad Love, is based off a book called The Hands of Dr. Orlick, and it's a French uh, novel by uh, Maurice Renard, and uh, the, the book is called Les Moines de Orlac. Les Moines de Orlac. Yeah, I can't really do very good French. That comes out in 1920. And then we have the silent movie, The, 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 uh, the Hands of Orlock, who first, the director, Robert Wine, yeah, and Arvine, Arvine, yeah, because w, the Germans pronounce the W yeah, as a V. Yeah. Uh, him and uh, our man Conrad Veidt, who we brought up in the Batman cast, uh, who I'd like to say, uh, full disclosure, I love, and I actually have a, a personal autograph I bought. Not that he did it to me. But I have a purse. I have <laughs> an autograph. Yeah, You're not born yet, <laughs> but, but I know you, you are. Will you will enjoy because they all sound like that. But I have an autograph of his that I, I got on eBay and like uh, from 1936. But um, as a young guy, very Johnny Deppish kind of a character at the time. Uh, they do this movie, uh, Dr. Calgary, which... The Cabinet some, of Dr. Calgary, 1920. Yeah, and some people kind of say he's kind of the first horror movie in the sense where this, this uh, I don't know, is he a professor? He's a madman that Calgary, and he's got this kind of guy doing his bidding, going out and doing yeah. things for him, which are horrific. And that, the director, Robert uh, Vine or Wine, he directs it. And we have our man, uh, Conrad Veidt, playing a very young... Uh, uh, character in the movie, he's he's the the subject of what's happening. So that team go on. Let's and just put it this way: if you haven't seen the Cabinet of Doctor Caligari, to to put it best, it's like Tim Burton's Wet Dream. Yeah, and they are actually like, we're going to redo it at some point yeah, after Edward yeah. Scissorhands. And you see a lot of a lot of German expressionism in general. You see all over Tim Burton stuff. Yeah. And like I said, we referenced Conrad Veidt in the Batman Tim Burton Batman cast because he was kind of the inspiration for the Joker, but. 
Tim Burton loves German Expressionism. And I think in the 90s, I heard they were going to, or when we were in college, they were going to yeah. remake it with Tim Burton. There was, a, there was talk. And Johnny Depp was going to play the Conrad Vack character. So he, the, the, they team up and go, and they do a version of the book, uh, I think in like 1924, yeah. called The Hands of Dr. Orlock. And uh, I guess we, well, we should tell hands, us. Hands of Orlock. Hands of Orlock. And I guess the synopsis for, for Mad Love, well, for, for the thing is, there's a, a a very very great piano player, and he is in a train accident, and his hands are completely mutilated. And a doctor uh, grafts new hands onto his to his to his yeah. body. And basically, the, yeah, he takes hands off of a of, kill, a, of a, a killer, of a, a killer, an executed murderer who is a knife thrower. Yeah. And I think in both versions, is I didn't read, I haven't read the short story or the book, but I think um, the subject, the piano player, um, is unaware. Uh, Orlock. Yeah, uh, he doesn't know that. He thinks they're his hands, yeah, re- like reconstructed. But it's actually that you know they, they, they've he's taken new hands. So no, like, he, they don't look like my hands. Yeah, and they're like, don't worry, it's because no, the that's because they were crushed. Yeah, and, you know, <laughs> we had to reconstruct. Them. And he now no longer can play the piano, but he has he's really good at throwing things. For some reason, he can throw shit you know? like nobody's business. And it turns into this whole psychological yeah. thing, which is. Uh, done very well in the 1924 silent film where he starts thinking like he's possessed and then his, his father is murdered and it turns into this whole other thing. And it's very, very, very well done. And I think this could be one of the the, the examples of like them doing an early remake. Yeah. So we, oh, totally. I mean, it know, is a remake. It's like, you know, a let the right one in. Yeah. It's like a Swedish film or whatever and everybody fucking loves it and yeah. they remake it in America in English. Yeah. It happens all the time. Let me I mean, it. it was, you know, uh, was they did remember in the nineties they did La Femme Nikita. Oh yeah, yeah, over here and it's point over turn. Yeah. yeah. Like they take a movie and they're like people aren't gonna wanna watch yeah. this in another language. Yeah, every, or uh, the world well, can deal with it, but Americans can't watch anything <laughs> dubbed or with subtitles. America's too stupid. So we're just gonna remake the fucker. Like the ring, you know, all the Japanese stuff. Exactly. So there is like it's They redo it here. It's it's happening in nineteen thirty five. And it's and it's and as it's happening today. So uh, we get to a point in the early 30s where we have a, uh, our man who uh, Blake and I absolutely adore, Peter Lorre, who, whose uh, birth name is Laszlo Lowenstein. He's born 1904 in June, and he has an upbringing in Austria where he's just normal middle class. Um, his father's some sort of a bookkeeper and accountant at a factory. He clashes a lot with his dad about stuff, what he wants to do with his life. He gets a job as like a bank teller and he's not happy just, you know, having a remedial job for his life. So he quits that and he wants to start acting. So he, uh, you know, his parents like, what the fuck? Like, like any other parents would do at yeah, the yeah. times they still do now. Like, no, you need a job and pay the bills. And he's like, I want to be an actor. So he, I want to act. Yeah, I want to do, I want to do acting. <laughs> and uh, forgive us for our Peter fuck Laurie. You. Yeah. But fuck's sake. <laughs> That's my poor German Peter Laurie. So. He sleeps on park benches. He's sleeping around, and there is a huge movement in the twenties because of, like we're saying, at the end of World War One. It's kind of like what turns into, I guess, over here, like the beatnik or pop generation, where it's like a lot of like philosophy, and you get these places that like not so much pubs, but like the cafe, and it was f- uh, all over Europe. You hear about it in f- Paris and France, and in certain parts of uh, Western Europe where you'd go to the cafe and that would be the place where you can freely debate politics and philosophies and, 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 and points of view. And that's where uh, Peter Lorre would hang out and he met people like um, uh, Bernhard Breck and he met uh, ended up meeting um, Fritz Lang or he meets, um, uh, what's his name, who ended up doing um, 
the uh, Kurt, Watt, Kurt Weil, who ended up doing all like the Three Penny Opera. He meets all these famous people there, and they're talking philosophy and all that kind of thing. And that's what you do. So it's a very like interesting time because, like we said, sadly it it goes the other way and it brings out the Hitler, the people who are kind of like you know people are jumping upon like, yeah, you're right. Fuck these people. Fuck this. You know, yeah, yeah. Germany's being treated unfair. So. Peter Lorre comes to age acting in the theater, and he goes from different, uh, you know, cities, Berlin, and different Austrian cities, and he becomes, like, the premier thing, and he's acting on stage. And then, uh, by chance, Fritz Lang says, hey, I'm doing a new movie called uh, M, which is, I guess, Murder, yeah. you know, for people who don't know. And they, they, he ends up doing this, this, this movie in 1931, which is Peter Lorre's uh, cinematic debut. And, and you want to tell them the, the kind of the, the synopsis for M? Uh... You know what? We can save it till, okay. li- till, yeah. till but later. It, N- M comes out, and it it utterly astounds and, and, and freaks people out. And it, it turns people on, much like the Anthony Perkins in Psycho, where it's like people realize that you don't really need makeup yeah. to be a horrific person, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, Peter Lorre has a quote where he, he used to say he was so proud that he didn't have to wear makeup, like, say, a Karloff or a Cheney to be frightening, because he said he, he liked... He thought acting comes from the inside out, and, and he, he thought it was all a product of his imagination. So yeah. he liked, and I think to go to a testament to Laura, you think about everybody else of that era to a certain extent had to kind of wear some sort of prosthetics, and Laurie really didn't need to because of his... Well, and he was weird looking. Yeah, he, you know, he had bulging eyes. He was small in stature. So, but he was a presence. I yeah, mean, I think that's what... And he's a really, really fucking good actor. You can put him in anything. I mean, he's, he is a, a very good character actor. You know? I mean, one of my favorite... Like ex- like dialogue exchanges of all time is Casablanca. He plays a very tiny part in Casablanca. Yeah, looks great. Yeah, he's, he's got the white the white tuxedo. And, yeah, he's only there to like further the, the yeah. plot because he's getting like talking to Humphrey Bogart. He's like, "You hate me, don't you?" Right? And he's like, "If I thought about it, I probably would. <laughs> if I thought like, about I you, I probably would." Which is like, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the best line ever. It's like I don't even. You don't even enter into an equation. I don't even care enough to hate you. Yeah, it's it's great, and he's he's such a good actor that he he was able to just I don't wouldn't call it method acting, but he was one of the first people who can people would just they wouldn't be able to delineate which you see happen in the old days reality uh, real R E A L to real R E E L. Let people, me ask you, for me, yeah. if I was to pinpoint like. I mean, like like I said, my mom was very into like older movies and Casablanca and stuff. So there's that introduction to Peter Lorre. But for me, I think a lot of our generation, anyway, maybe not a generation even one or two years younger than us, but like my a big like Peter Lorre like uh, introduction for me is like Looney Tunes. Yeah, no, <laughs> they they used to end up satirizing him and being the mad. Di- it's for some reason he comes over. Uh, you know he's huge. He's huge in M, and then he, uh, like I'm saying, we're talking about people not being able to delineate truth to reality. There's, there's when when they have the opening for M, uh, some woman who they say is like a nymphomaniac rushes the crowd and runs up to Peter Lorre, and, and she's like all over him, like, oh my god, you know, you, you were so fascinating in that role, and he's like, uh, you really think so? And she's like, yes, and he's like, well, just then send your daughter over tomorrow morning. <laughs> you know, it's he, just you know laughing it off. But to answer your question. When he came over here in the 30s, for some reason, people associate him as, like, Igor from Frankenstein. And in that statement, there's, like, two or three uh, falsities where it's, like, one, Frankenstein comes out in 1931, 
and uh, Frankenstein, the doctor who makes the monster, who people think Frankenstein's the name of the monster. It's not. Yeah. It's the doctor Frankenstein. He has an assistant. This is a good tie into this movie, by yeah. the way. <laughs> he has an assistant named uh, Fritz, who's played by a really, really, really cool character actor named Dwight Fry, which I love, who ended up sadly dying of a heart attack while going cross town on a city bus with his kid. And he never really got the fame he did. But a lot of people who are into older movies will know him as, as Fritz, the, 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 the assistant of Dr. Frankenstein and Frankenstein. And he also plays Renfield in the original Dracula. The <laughs> That's Dwight Fry. Now you get to like Son of Frankenstein, which I think is the third. It's the third, yeah. Yeah, yeah. after Bride. Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, and then you got yeah, Son, of, Son Frankenstein. of Frankenstein. Which is a particular favorite of you and mine. Yeah, <laughs> Son is freaking awesome. But I bring Son up because it's, it's fucking goofy as shit, but it's what's No, but awesome it's not about. goofy in a sense where it's well, laughable. It's goofy just it's, like it let's plays. Let's put it this way like a lot of like what young Frankenstein, the Mel oh, Brooks yeah, they movie, got right out of it. Yeah. They took right out of it, and there's, but there is stuff in like. Son of Frankenstein, where like when they did it for Young Frankenstein, they didn't need to push it that no, far. No, no, no. It it's just, yeah, it's just they just add a sound effect, and it's absolutely <laughs> hilarious. But you at know, the same it's time, like, it's frightening. It's that teeter line because you know we've we took a horror comedy classes. Horror and comedy are so related yeah. that you can either just step step one way to the left, one way to the right. It could be very scary and then be very uh, hilarious. Yeah. So in Son of Frankenstein, you have I think it's also Boris Karloff's last picture as Frankenstein because yeah. he's like this is a, a below me now I want to yeah, transcend. Like I can't keep doing this. Yeah, I can't be sitting. We in also a get chair. Bela Lugosi, and you get this is my, my point. Bela Lugosi comes into it, and Bela Lugosi for for sadly and Basil a, Rathbone, right? Basil plays the he plays uh, Doctor Frankenstein. Frankenstein's yeah son or grandson but, or whatever. Just throwing that out there, but we're but talking the point about- is uh, Frankenstein's still alive, the monster, and there's this uh, side character Bela Lugosi plays called Igor, and Igor is it's so fucked up. Igor is this murderer or whatever that fucking they they. Uh, that the, the the local courts have relegated to die by hanging or to yeah. be hung. He's hung his his neck breaks, but he doesn't die. But he doesn't die. <laughs> he just breaks his neck, and his neck heals, so he's like sideways. Yeah. So he's got this weird. It's real frightening, and that's the Igor character. For so so long story short, too late. The amalgamum is that they people now associate it like Frankenstein is the is the de- doctor, and Igor is the assistant. And for some reason, people thought that like Peter Lorre. For some reason, when I was growing up, you think like yes, master, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. that he is that, and he's not. Yeah. And and in the mid thirties, he's doing a lot of stuff in in in. Uh, Germany and Austria, but like you're saying, he was Jewish, and a lot of people were getting scared because, like, you know, Hitler's talking some crazy shit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, this is crazy. You, know, you this hear is, this guy? You know, you know, and then they, you know, they, they they're burning. I mean, books. not to make light of it. Yeah, but the, it is. That's such a crazy. They're burning books at the Reichstag. You know, the Night of the Long Knives. There's like a lot of crazy stuff happening. People looking a blind eye. You know, and, and then you know to, to start calling out names like France is openly giving them their Jews. Like, just stay away from us. Here are the people that you want. Don't don't, yeah. don't bother us. So you know, a lot of them hightail it out of there. A lot of these. These, uh, like we're saying, these auteurs, the directors, yeah. actors, producers, uh, composers, they first go to France and then they make their way over to England. And uh, Laurie, our main guy, he gets to England in, I think, like 1934. And he does his first uh, English movie. He does Alfred Hitchcock's original uh, movie, The Man Who Knew Too Much, in 1934. And it's a testament to think of Laurie, who in 1931 or 32 was speaking German. Yeah. He is forced, like so many others, to move and get out of their country. And, and you got to think about it. It's like us having to leave America. You love America, and you're being forced to leave your motherland for whatever reason. And you got to go to this other foreign country. And not only that, you have to learn a language. 
and not only has Laurie learned a new language, but like 34, I, know, I mean, granted, he learned his lines for uh, The Man Are Too Much uh, uh, phonetically because yeah. he didn't know American that much. But, but like 35, when we're talking his first American debut is Mad Love. He not only has a command of the English language, he is pretty good where he doesn't have that much of an accent. Yeah, yeah. And lastly, before I get off Peter Laurie because I'm talking too much about him, uh, there was this huge thing when people got over here, and it was really bitter between all these these. Uh, I guess you'd call call them um, what do you call them? the people who leave and they're they're like immigrants. Yeah, no, but they're they're kind of like uh, refugees. Refugees, the refugees of Europe at the time, where there was a huge stark difference between two schools of thought. Where when Laurie got here, Laurie wanted to embrace America, and his point was he wanted to try to learn. English so well that he would kind of lose his accent yeah. and he strove to try to lose all the German so he could you know he, he would particularly try to like you know work at losing that where a lot of the other people resented that and they're like you know fuck you you know why are you going back in your heritage and then it was also resentment of them coming over here and not being able to get enough good work yeah, yeah. you know so there was this huge thing where he, he was kind of frowned upon because he went back in like 51 to do a movie called The Lost One which is his biographies that uh, it's a great um uh, work that the name is based off of and it's about a killer who was a doctor in post-war Europe and and didn't really do well because the one the German people were like you know we don't want us to reflect on the war because it just happened like a couple years ago and two like screw you 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 went away you didn't have to deal with it so there was a lot of animosity built up there and and people had issues with him but it's I think it's a testament to think that you know in two or three years he has a command of the English language and that's pretty cool yeah, yeah. you know so he comes over here in 1935, and he gets it. Uh, you know, he, he's he's running around. He's 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 getting praise from you know different um, doing stuff in in England, and he comes over here and he gets a contract with Columbia Pictures, but Columbia doesn't use him for like a year, and he's like, yeah. he's like, what the fuck? He's like, I'm sitting here, I'm under contract. You're not using me. Let me do something. Come on, come on, come on. And he's loaned out to MGM, and they want him to do this picture, Mad Love. But he says, listen, I love the Dolfieski. Uh, book Crime and Punishment. Okay, yeah. I want to make that. So on the condition you let me make that and play like a central character in that, yeah. I will do your Mad Love. And he ends up doing Mad Love, which comes out in thirty-five. Yeah. Uh, and that's it. I'm Peter Laurie. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Uh, so Mad Love. I mean, we have um, we kind of explained the story a little bit in terms of the Hands of Orlock. So this is a remake of that the story and then of course the 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 silent german movie i mean we're talking about i mean um carl frund who directed it yeah is also one of those german guys very much in the german expressionism movement uh he was a cinematographer he shot Gollum. yeah in uh 20 he shot metropolis in 27 yeah there's that connection there um he he does uh, in thirty two. He comes and he does a movie called Murders in the Rue Morgue, which is I mean he's done a hundreds yeah, of movies. I'm just movie, yeah. I'm just doing some of like the greatest hits. Yeah, he ends course. up shooting Key Largo, but he's also he's he's got this unique eye where he's bringing that perspective of like the German expressionism over here, and they the like German him so much. I wish there was you know I, I should have broke out my notes uh, for when I taught the class to try to explain what it is. Was, it's well, it's just it's like it's kind of like very shadowy film noir it's shadowy, but it's very but it's exaggerations also, of yeah it's got like weird angle it's very like very straight lines but often at weird angles it's a way of like like for instance um we think about like i guess the the contemporaries of that time the, the, like people our age at the time they were looking back to their childhood or their parents childhood so that's the reason why i think it's set in like that late 19th century yeah. kind of a thing but then it's it's then an exaggeration of all that well but as an artistic movement if you take like uh 
you know, uh, impressionism Mm -hmm. in like painting and stuff is very much trying to make things look realistic, you know, and you got like surrealism, which is very much trying to like accurately in a way they're, they're trying to accurately capture like a dream state. Yeah. You know, try to be very, you know, that's the whole thing with like the surrealist is very much like trying to tap into dreams and the subconscious and the imagery comes out of like that. Whereas expressionism is like taking something like you would do with impressionism and make it look realistic and, and impressionism you would do with expressionism. You kind of, you take it and you kind of tilt it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, a little skew. You know, it's like a little bit surrealistic in that you're taking it and you're making it a little off. So it's, it turns out to be like a lot of stuff's kind of exaggerated. So you have these movies where you look at like... Bride of Frankenstein, or, or certainly a lot of the Universal, because Son of Frankenstein has a lot of like the architecture. Stuff yeah, very... because a lot of it, it's funny. It just lends itself because all these foreigners, these German and Europeans, were coming here, so they were directly involved with these Universal productions. Because Universal was like all the studios were gobbling them up. Shit, yeah, yeah. yeah, of course you can do whatever. I you mean, want. they're I mean, they're are brilliant artists. Yeah. They have this like unique visual style, and that's why you get these crazy like you know. Uh, like vistas of like you know the 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 cemetery uh, you know at night and, and even now I think a lot of like you think of like the the Wolfman mummy not the mummy so much but Wolfman Dracula and Frankenstein you kind of think of like it's like Eastern Europe late yeah, at night yeah. spooky in the woods you know uh, people with pitchforks and freaking like you know torches it's like all that and you get these sets like you're saying like Son of Frankenstein where these sets if you sit back and look at them they're freaking huge yeah. and they're almost they're supposed the to be like these in castles this movie too are very, yeah. are very reminiscent. But they're more the realistic. Yeah. But, but they like, try he tried to then with lighting, like you're saying, yeah, cameraing. But there's like a, in this movie, uh, in Mad Love, I don't I, there's part of the movie that I don't understand is like he's got like this hospital that it's also his house, right? Like I mean cl- it's, it's one, like a clinic. It's like it's one like, building. Though, yeah, right? he's probably like one side of it. He's like you know, And there's like the room duplex. where like the <laughs> where like the little where like the kids the little the kid is Yeah, that's who's taking care of at the time. And uh but like the window behind him in that scene is like is askew. It's like it's not perfectly like yeah square. You angular. know, it's not like yeah, it's like a you little know. bit off. And, and it's it's beautiful. You get some examples of these again in these early Universal movies, and just it's so beautiful, and that's where you you know for we're still talking about it now. It yeah, influences, yeah. I think, everything from music to whatever. And you know, we talked about the influence of like World War One, and that's totally here. I mean, there's even a line like, "Oh, he play Peter Lorre plays a, co- a character named Doctor Gogol, yes. who's like this uh, brilliant surgeon." Yeah, and, and the emphasis now, as you see with Mad Love, is that they take it off where the hands of Orlock, and also I think the book. The original book source material is more of the plight of the victim, the pianist. Of Orlock. Yeah, of Orlock himself. Where now we're shifting it and we're making it more of a story about the, the brilliant surgeon, uh, Gogol, Dr. Gogol. Who's mad with love. Yeah, uh, p- uh, played by <laughs> Peter Lorre. So, but like, there's like, there's this part was like, you think he can do it? And he's like, oh, he's a, he's a brilliant, he, you know, he helps kids with deformities and soldiers. Yeah, he, he fixes children and mutilated soldiers is, is, is his, is his, is what they say about him. And it's like, you know what? On the front of it, you know, he's really doing the Lord's work. He's going yeah. in there and he's a brilliant surgeon. He's fixing people. He's, you know, he's he's helping kids see again, walk again, soldiers have some sort of life, you know. But uh, what I find fascinating is there's this other side of him, this sadomasochistic kind of a side where then it's about he... Uh, he go- and then 
to, to give you a little more backstory, in in uh, Paris in the early first 20 years of the 20th century, there was a theater they called Theater of the Horrors, Grand Guignot. And it was this place where you were... Uh, Guignot is a pun on the... Uh, was it Punch and Judy? The marionettes and the, the pu- puppets, puppetry. Um, and that was the slang for like a puppet or a puppeteer. So they, they make this theater and it sounds like it's supposed to be for kids, but it was for adults. And, and, you, and basically at the time, since you didn't really, you know, you go to the cinema or you go to the theater, you'd see all kinds of farces in it. You'd see like either yeah. uh, romantic, you know, over the, over the top melodramas, or you'd see these horrific yeah. horror plays. And it was, and it, you know, people would, and it was emphasis on like the horror where, you know, people would be insane with lust. They'd always go insane over yeah, love yeah. or something. And it'd be like beheadings. Yeah. All kinds hangings. of, and it's, it was, it's almost, and it's almost like a wax museum where it's like kind of depicting what's in the news or what's happening. So there was a huge audience for this in Paris. And it was something, you know, everything from like the, that, you know, you'd have like the 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 orchestra level where people, the uh, normal people would go, the working class, then the the upper boxes, you'd have the elite or the uh, uh, aristocrats would go to. Yeah. And we find out in this movie, he's <laughs> and we bring it, we bring this up because yeah, because he he's in he's Laurie as a, a, at night, Doctor Gogol is going and seeing these performances, and we have an actress named um, uh, Francis Drake. Who uh, has his seems to me channeling a little of uh, Judy Garland in this picture? She's always <laughs> I can see answering that. like, "What do you mean?" Oh, well, yeah, <laughs> Judy Garland's always like, "I don't know what's going on." And, and it's also like, "What's her face in Rebel Without a Cause?" She has a little of that too. Uh, oh, Natalie Woods. Natalie Woods kind of like you know a- answers everything with like an exaggerated yeah, yeah. yelling uh, question. But he's going to see her. She's she's performing in this really kind of weird play which is melodramatic but it's a horror where at the end she's getting killed every night yeah, and, and, yeah. and she's been performing it for 47 nights in a row and, and he's been to every show and yeah. he's got his own box and uh it's kind of crazy like right off the bat like you know she's on stage and there's like i don't know it's, it seems like it's some sort of like um maybe like the uh the reformation area where they're like in a crucifier for her beliefs it's like yeah, priests yeah. or whatever and they've got like a like a hot uh freaking oh they're poker. gonna brand her they're gonna brand her and you don't see where they they, but it's low. It's low. It goes <laughs> low. So but low. My but, but low is like they go low on her body. So yeah. you, the implication is that like they're brown in the, they're, that might be brand in the nether region. Yeah, the old the old South, hot and steamy South. And everyone in the play is like, oh, like you know, it's like, oh my gosh, it's so horrifying. But you cut to Lori. Lori's in his box, and it's beautifully done. How they have like his his face is half lit, so you see. And what he what he did for the role is he shaved the the, the head, his head clean. And it, that was his idea, where he wanted to have a completely bald head to show that, like, even this guy is a master of science. He really has no kind of uh, uh, realization of what his appearance looks like. He doesn't really yeah, care yeah. about that. And he, so he's half lit, kind of, and he looks like he's having, he's ejaculating. Yeah, I think, yeah, like, like he's he's rubbing one out. Yeah, and like, <laughs> and right right when she, the, she gets the, the 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 poker in the tukis or whatever they're putting it in the, the hukacha, uh, in the swastika. He looks like he has an orgasm because yeah, his eyes yeah. like like roll back at his head and it's like oh my god. But sadly, this is her last performance and he doesn't realize that. So he's he's yeah. coming to her like her her her. I don't think it to me it doesn't seem like they've ever met. I think no. She I don't knows think so. that like this illustrious doctor's going. Yeah, there's like word around the theater that there's this brilliant surgeon that has come to every show, and I think he realizes that it, like it's the last 
run of this particular show. Oh. But I don't think he, he doesn't realize that she's not going to continue with like the next whatever the next play is or whatever. Uh, because she's an actress obviously and her husband is Dr. Br- Orlock or he's not a doctor. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> you keep saying Dr. Orlock. He's like he's a brilliant uh concert pianist. Um and he was played by uh, the the great Colin Clive, who shows up like we said. The connection. He's the Doctor yeah. Frankenstein in the He's original. He's Doctor Frankenstein in the original. So people know him as you know. It's alive! It's alive! That's him. And he had a sad life as well, which we can get into. But you know, they all they all did. Yeah, uh, it was a sad time. And he's he they they got married a year before uh, in in the world of Mad Love. And he's over, I think, like in Paris. You know, they're in Paris, so he's maybe in England. And he's yeah. he's going around touring, and I love how like to, to to utilize the medium, you know, that they're listening every night to his radio. Yeah, there's like, radio, there's like radio broadcast live performances of him and, playing. And she's saying to her assistant who's helping her get dressed, she's like, you know, he says before he starts, if he costs tri- twice, that means I love you. And then you hear like everything stop, and he's ready to go, and you hear like, <coughs> and everyone's like, oh, so I was like, oh, that's so cool. He's sending out yeah. like a good old shout out to her. Yeah. So uh, Lori comes in, and Lori like I think wants to like. I don't know what he wants to do. He wants to like maybe like propose to her or talk to her, but he doesn't ever realize that she's married. And he doesn't realize that. that she's married, and he doesn't realize that like after this show, they're gonna move somewhere, and she's not. Gonna I think she's work reuniting anymore. with. She's going to meet her husband. Maybe yeah. he's away in England. They've been they've they've been away for a year, both touring on separate things. And this is like it destroys his world. And he's like, yeah. you know, oh my god, and to the point where he like. They have a wax statue in the lobby that's promoting the show she's in, and it's a very realistic likeness because later on she just ends up playing the wax statue. Yeah, yeah. In well, the she role. plays the wax statue in the climax, which is real freaky. Well, but she plays it in the in the close up. Yeah, yeah, uh, which yeah. Is, it's pretty cool. <laughs> You know, uh, to make it look as much like her as possible, so that you would at the end of the movie buy that. What you know, that she's standing in for the wax statue in the in the big climax as Deanne's indicating. Like, whenever there's a close-up of the wax statue, it's just the actress standing there still. Yeah. And, and Laurie's in so much love to it. He's he's walking out distraught that he finds out she's leaving, that they're about to, like, you know, I don't think it was like they're getting three pounds for the wax. He, he's like, well, then surely you'll take five or whatever. And he, so he, or marks, I guess it is. And uh, he takes, he buys the, the wax statue and he brings it home. And there's a weird psychosis going on with him because he's like... Uh, the next scene, uh, he's about to operate. Remember, he's about to operate on uh, this child, and he's yeah, like yeah. telling like his assistant, uh, Doctor Wong, played by the the brilliant Aki Luke, uh, who you later people will know is in the Gremlins movie. He sells the Mogwai to yeah. what's his face as the he's the elder man. Um, he's like, you have to keep quiet because the child is. It's, it's a very, it's a funny joke. He's like, you have to keep quiet because the child is very fragile. And then he gets a phone call and he tells like, this is like, shut up, you know. And then he hears that someone's telling him on the other end that there's going to be an execution. He's like, what? An execution? <laughs> the kid starts crying. And it's like, you know, he, has, he doesn't even care. It's, it's it is it's like it's very like it has to be set up for comedy. I mean, it's it's like such like a setup and then a punchline. You know, he, he's it, like, you have to. She hasn't slept. You have to let her get her sleep. And then the phone guy's like, what? I said, an execution? Of course. I'll come, you know, and it's like he's he's made this uh, he's such friends with like the police commissioner and like the local government that they invite him personally, and he loves. So he's fascinated with death. So that alludes to kind of the fact that I guess he is also uh, he loves pain so much and seeing you know the the uh, the executions that he must get some sort of feeling out of maybe operating on his uh on his on his not i wouldn't say his victims but his patients because he's curing them so there's there's some sort of weird 
thing going on with his psyche. But he even says like, um, you know, uh, I can conquer science, but I can't conquer love. So it's like you really, you know, he's he's doing this performance where it's like you kind of really, really, you know, feel for him where he's 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 this he's this really troubled guy and he's like a a troubled little man but at the same time he's he's still um uh having these 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 fits of dementia or this kind of weird thing that ends up overtaking him near the end and he goes to uh to to the next scene to watch this uh hanging and it's it's really funny or not uh yeah i guess they're gonna hang the guy and they're gonna execute a uh uh uh, a murderer who's a knife thrower in a carnival and it's done by this character actor named edward uh, uh brophy who uh was a character actor in the 30s but people would if you're into todd browning's freaks that we brought up before he is the knife thrower in freaks so it's almost like a this is like a pseudo sequel to freaks it's like where the guy ended up and uh oh yeah good point. i mean i knew he was in that movie but i never put two and two together like that and he's also uh he's an american and they make the point like they're executing an american so he goes and and it's it's very funny where it's like he's the american in the sense where he runs into a newspaper man uh that's there covering it, and you know he's like, "Wow, they, they brought you over here from the states to to, to to see me get hung," and he's he completely doesn't even care that he's he's being hung, and it's such an Americanism. He's like, "So they finished the Hoover Dam," and he's like, "Yeah," and he's like, "Wow, the Hoover <laughs> yeah, Dam." Yeah, you know, yeah. He's like, "It's it's just how the Americans are. They're just it's, yeah. it's averse the the very aristocratic or very refined European." So it's funny. There's a lot of familiar faces in the movie. I mean, there's him, but the commissioner is played by a uh, an actor. And I only bring it up because it's one of like my favorite movies of all time. Is uh, the actor's name is Henry Culker, and he he plays the commissioner in this. But he um, he's in uh, the movie Holiday with Cary Grant. And oh yeah, Catherine yeah. Hepburn as he plays Catherine Hepburn's father. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and I just like I was watching. I was like, hey, it's that guy. Hey, look at him. It's him. Because I mean, I love. I, that's like my favorite. Like, Cary Grant. Cary Grant. Hepburn. Oh know, yeah. Types slaps the con. Yeah. Was, dude, you're right. There's a lot of. I mean, I just said the reporter. The key Luke. Key also, Luke. You mentioned. Yeah. Well, uh, the reporter. He's played by a guy named Ted Healy. Yeah. And Ted Healy was a guy who was a comedian, and he got his start on the vaudeville stage. And in 1923, he hired Moe and Shemp Horowitz, and he did a vaudeville act called the Ted Healy and his Stooges. And, uh, you know, he had this act where he was a straight man. And he had these two guys who ended up changing their name to, to, to uh, instead of Horowitz, they went to Howard. Yeah. So it was Shemp and Mo Howard. But uh, Healy was a drunk. And Healy had a really problem with drinking. And he even had more of a problem with drinking during performances. Yeah. So it got to the point where they were on stage doing their vaudeville act. And he was really like hitting them, whacking them. You know the violence of the Three Stooges. Yeah, yeah. And it got to the point where Shep up and quit. And uh, that's when uh, they brought in Curly Jerome, who was the third Horowitz Howard. And he replaced Shemp in the vaudeville play. And they also brought in Larry Feinberg, Larry Feinberg who was yeah. a violinist who changed his name then to Larry Fine. But at, at a certain point, they were like, you know, this fucking guy. Like, we don't even need this yeah, guy. Yeah, he's, he's a drunk. He's very fucking violent. And he's an asshole. So they ended up letting him go. And they just, you know, dropping the name for Ted Haley and his Stooges. They became the Three Stooges. And then we know the rest is forever. So he went into pictures. He's like, fuck you guys. I can go into the pictures. <laughs> and he goes into yeah. the pictures. He does this movie and does like two other ones. And then, like I said, he had a problem with drinking. And like his wife ends up giving birth, I think, to their first child. And he, to celebrate the birth of, I think, of his son, he decides he's going to go and, and drink in every bar in L.A. 
And he goes and he drinks in every bar in LA and he gets to this one bar, which I forget the name of, and the bartender's like, yo, I'm not going to serve you. You're too hammered. And he gets into this fight with somebody outside, as you do in the old days, uh, yeah. you know. And he gets into this altercation in the parking lot and he gets like the crap beat out of him and he goes home and he dies. And I guess that, you know, there's very mixed reports on how he died if it was either because of blunt force trauma to the head that he got hit yeah. repeatedly or because of cirrhosis of the liver. He just drank himself to death. And, yeah, you know, yeah. and then with that correlating to him getting fight. Uh, and, then, and that happens to a lot of people. We brought up Colin Clive. Colin Clive was a drunk. And uh, he's another guy where he had this. He was he was in World War One. He was going to pursue a career in the army. The Colin Clive, like we said, was the Doctor Frankenstein, the original Frankenstein who plays the pianist Orlock here. Uh, a horse fell on him during World War One. It shattered his knee and kind of really fucked his leg up. And he got out of it. He got into acting, but he drank uh, habitually. And when he did Bride of Frankenstein and the sequel to Frankenstein, uh, he did some sort of stunt where he jumped or something, and it re-injured his leg. And uh, when he was doing this movie, he was in a lot of pain. And, of course, to, 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 to supplement that, he was drinking. And he only died, like, age 39, yeah, yeah. you know, from, from drink. And it's just, I think he died of um, tuberculosis and also the onset of what's going on here. But you're yeah. right. There's so many the, uh, uh, character actors in this. So we, we set up the plot of... So uh, they end up... They end up um, I don't mean to cut you off. They end up uh, executing this guy. Yeah. And it's it's re- a really cool shot where, like, Lori's, like, talking to a child who he's cured walking by. And then he kind of looks up, and he's the sun's beating down. And it's a beautiful shot where you cut to, like, the guillotine. And, like, you know, and it's such a, an Amer- uh, un-American thing because, you know, we either hang him or shoot him, and, and he's going to get his head cut off. Oh, I yeah. said he was going to get hung. They're going to chop his head off. So it's like, it, that's where the American press is like, wow, it's, oh my God, he's going yeah, to yeah. get his head yeah, cut so off. Yeah, so he's not getting hung. He's getting yeah, de- he's, beheaded. Yeah, by, uh, beheaded, beheaded by, by the guillotine. And he looks up, and it's a beautiful shot where like the sun's in the background and shimmering. And then when he, when he, when he, when he gets cut, you see like Lori like look up, and he's kind of like uh, frowning a little bit from the, from it, from the, the, the sun. And it's just a really cool kind of a, yeah. the, what he's doing there. So now this the, guy's getting executed. But the train, on the train... That yeah, the, the execute the guy is on the life thrower. Who's yeah, playing, they brought him is our, is Orlock. Oh yeah, our pianist. Um, and there's a, some kind of train accident. Yeah, uh, which is I guess in the original and in the book. And uh, there's there's a horrible train accident. She's waiting for him at the station, Francis Drake. And uh, she's like, you know, there's a train accident. They all run, and evidently this is really the censors were really worried about this. They're like, you can't show horrific people in the train accident and there's like a there's yeah. you, they, they used to imply a lot like you know he's sharing his compartment with a guy who has a dog and the guy's like hiding the dog in his bag like because he doesn't they're like they make me pay a fare for the dog so let's hide the dog and he's like oh i can keep a secret if you can too so when the train accident happens you see like um francis drake and her assistant go and they find like what compartment he was in and you see the assistant take the dog out and that's kind of like to imply like that guy didn't make it yeah you know yeah. she's going to take care of the dog so we're glad the dog made it because back then they would do anything to these animals but we find out that his hands are he, his hands get crushed or horribly yeah. dis, uh, you know injured so there's the the, the immediate and the, the, yeah so they take him to the hospital and the doctor's like we gotta we gotta take these things off. yeah or he's gonna fucking kill him yeah you know? <laughs> <laughs> like i know she's like but he's a pianist he's his hands he's are like well you want him to fucking die or you want like, to well, die or you can and he's like he's like lady come on he's like i got a triage here which yeah. hasn't even been coined yet until uh korea but like hey come on it's like you know i got all these so she comes up with this idea even though she's really creeped out by peter laurie's character she's Dr. like oh yeah i have a, a this guy who's a huge fan of mine maybe he can help yeah he's like, okay whatever and the doctor's like oh i got four more operations fine you i'll release the body to you it's not it's not ethical but whatever and she brings him over she like brings a right to Lori's house. Yeah, yeah. Wakes up in the middle of the night, and Lori's like, "What do you mean?" You're like, "Oh fuck up!" And then he realizes <laughs> her. To sleep. 
and he's like, holy shit, okay. He's like, I, you know, uh, he's like, she's like, I need you to help me. And, he, and, he, and he's like, okay, bring the body in, get, bring it into my clinic. And he's looking at it, and you got Key Luke there, Dr. Wong. And he's like, uh, you know, this is going to be bad. And they're like, in, they're almost in the middle to like operate. I forget. I don't know what he's planning to do. I guess he's maybe going to plan to. Well, I just, think he discovers that there is no way to save his yeah, hands. Yeah, he's just gonna he's gonna just take the hands off, and they're they're getting they're in like pre op, they're about to put uh, what's his face under the uh, Orlock, give him some anesthesia. They're they're washing their hands, and Lori has this amazing idea. He's like, "Fuck, wait a minute, don't put him under yet, uh, Doctor Wong. Hold hold the presses." Yeah, yeah. He calls up his friend uh, who's in the government, the commish, the commish, uh, and he says to uh, what's his face, he, he says to. Um, he says, "Listen, uh, release the the the, the execution the, the 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 murderer's body to me. I, I got some scientific experiments I'm doing. It can't wait. Let me uh, let me do it. Uh, let me have that body. body. Sure, <laughs> why not? The stranger things have happened. Right over. Yeah, we're sitting right over. It's still cold. <laughs> and there's a deleted scene where where I don't know how it plays into the the, the chronology of what's happening, but there's a deleted scene where they have the uh, they've they fixed uh, his head." Back on the body with this with this contraption, and he's got like a piece of a glass kind of like vial in the throat, and Doctor Wong and uh, and Peter Laurie are over the body, they're doing stuff, and there's like blood that's boiling up like on an IV, and and, and he's saying Laurie's like the carotid artery, and he's like that this is the key to life. If I'm able to to figure this out, uh, you know, I can I can make man live again, and then it gets into this philosophical debate where Key looks like well, yes, but the whole point of living is to prepare for death. And he's like, but if you don't want to li- if you don't want to die, we can live forever. And he's like, but then people will want to die if they have to live forever. So, so well, anyway, we should we should emphasize that that's not in the movie. no. This is a deleted scene, <laughs> which I guess they shot. So evidently, he's able to like revive the guy yeah. briefly enough to get the blood flowing again. He's able to take the hands off. He yeah. takes the hands off, and he—I guess he doesn't tell anybody except Doctor Wong knows yeah, yeah. that he—he—he he, he grafts the hands, the the killer's hands onto um, Orlock, Orlock's hands, and Orlock wakes up, and then it's like, uh, you know, since I guess they're they're both uh, pretty well off because of what they're doing, Orlock's like, not only have I you know done this, not only have I done this to your hands, it's like you know you're gonna have to have extensive yeah. uh, physical therapy to, to yeah. you know, so it's gonna be like an, an like it's gonna be a an ongoing yeah treatment yeah that and he can't work so we get this situation it's a great they- montage well there's two montages there's the montage of during the surgery she has like she's like can't sleep Francis Drake and she's having like uh, hallucinations or fantasies of the train crashing then like Peter Laurie's face and she's like ah and it's a great thing that passes the time and then it wakes up and he's telling her that and there's this montage where it's like you see the days going by and they're you know he's getting all kinds of things done with like radium and fucking you know, yeah, yeah, like ultraviolet treatment all kinds of stuff they're just hitting them you know <laughs> and then as well as then it's cutting like she they're, they're at the point now where they're having to hawk stuff and there's creditors and like you yeah. know so it's interesting that even though Peter Laurie has such an affinity for her, he's still charging her. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's like, fuck, I gotta make it's a business. <laughs> <laughs> but also, like, even if it's not his uh, expenses, she's not working because she's taking care of him, and he's not working because he can't play piano. Yeah, and then he, and he's, and he's trying to get back to play, but uh, he can't play. And he just can't do it. And he's getting gradually frustrated. And I think it's really cool because they have done something uh, to his hands because they don't look like his hands. Yeah, exactly. It's it is fucking weird. Brilliant. I don't know if it's not like his sleeves are they too did, short. They or did something, something where where he said it, it. I think it made. It, no, it wasn't Jack Pierce because he was contracting Universal. But they did something that was really painful. Um, 
what's his face, uh, Colin Clive would say, where they like they dyed his hands in three different dyes, and they put all this stuff on him, and they tried to emphasize like where the wrinkles are, and then the the stuff they put on to make it look like the scarring tissue, which is yeah. a pretty cool, wicked scar. Yeah. They did that, so it was really painful. So at the end of the day, his hands were like, it, and it took a couple hours for him to get it on and off. This shit yeah, they did, yeah. but. The the effect I think works brilliantly because it does it looks like he's got like these big hands now. Yeah, it looks like they're not quite his hands. And he's getting progressively frustrated because he can't play. So you hear like, you know, he's trying to practice and it doesn't sound quite right and he's getting mad. He's like, What the fuck, what the fuck? So he's like since he's getting angry, he's like he like at one point he picks like a pen up and he just throws it out of anger and it's like you know, he's throwing it like his fucking he's a knife thrower. Yeah. And it's also like a little callback to uh, something that happens on the train. With, uh, the oh, because the knife thrower tells the, the press was it tells the press man or tells no tells the that's another interesting thing where it's it's you say of the time where it's the the, the guy who's sharing the berth with um the with the pianist uh who has the dog he's like he hears oh there's the the notorious murderer on board I have an autograph book but I don't have a murderer's autograph so it's like at the time where they were even a celebrity so he wants to get yeah. the murderer's autograph so he goes into the car and the guy's like what are you doing in here and he's like can I have your autograph and I think yeah he's like he's like get out and he takes the pen he signs his book and then he's like get out and he throws the pen yeah and it lodges and into Clive the comes to the police like what the fuck do you want and he's like nothing he's like that's my pen <laughs> he takes the pen off and he takes like, the pen and so like he throws the it's like a fountain pen. Yeah. So he throws it in frustration in his house and it sticks on the wall. And then it, that's the first inclination that he realizes something's weird because he He's remembers it because he walks over and goes, that's my pen. He says that to her. Oh, and it's like, and it's almost like, but he's it's like it he's remembering it from the, from the train. She wants him to go to his stepfather. Right. For no, money? I think it's, it's, his, his, it's his father. father. And his father has it's a subplot which is in the book and, and is a big uh, turning point in the silent movie. Uh, his father, for some reason, is a real douchebag and is resents him for not carrying on in the family business of being like a jeweler. So yeah. his father's like, I heard what happened to you, and I knew you'd be back for me yeah, to yeah. borrow money. I guess so he, he's always you. wanted like the. I guess he wanted the son to work at the shop, and the son and the son and Orlock uh, instead wanted to become a pianist. And he and he's so the father's always like resented him, resented for him for not. Yeah, it maybe resented him in the business. Fa- it maybe even resents him more that he was a, a that he was ultimate success. At. So he's like, fuck you, and I'm not gonna help you now. Go fuck your mother. <laughs> <laughs> um, I started moving the plot forward because the guy who plays his father is another familiar face for sci-fi nerds. And you probably would notice him in other stuff, but I will say... I think he looks like... I, uh, if people, only three people will get this, but I think he looks like a, po- a poor man's Hume Chrome. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but uh, I will say that he, for people in the know, I'm not even going to quote the episode, but he plays the librarian in an episode of Star Trek, the original oh, series. Oh, okay. He must be older at that point. Yeah, because he's an older guy. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. he's, he's playing he old actually, in this movie. To be honest, he might actually show up in a couple of Star Trek episodes. That would happen a lot with some of like the bit players would show up in, like, in one season, and then the next season show up as a different character. But he was instantly, when I was watching, I was like, hey, it's the librarian from Star Trek. Um, so he gets in this argument with his father. You know, I, I also like, too, is when the, when the, the press guys, uh, they're, you know, the Americans are over here to cover the execution of the murder, and the, and the guy's like, we don't like, don't, please don't make a big fuss in the press, and, and uh, Ted Healy, the press guy, is like, don't worry, I'll use a soft pencil. That's <laughs> 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 like, I love those little, like, jokes that are just, ah, ha, ha. we're such idiots. So he, uh, gets, he gets angry, he gets heated with an argument with his father, because he needs money. As that yeah, He went to his father's uh, store, which is like a jewelry store, yeah. and he ends up, yeah, in frustration, he, he's fucking... He picks up a knife or, like, a letter open or something and throws it. Throws that fucker across the room. Yeah. And, and 
bad. It's witnessed by like the father's like coworker. Yeah, yeah. You better leave. He doesn't hit his father. No, but no. we see him throw it, and it could be uh, kind of. Uh, perceived that he threw it at his dad and missed but i don't think that's the case but but the co-worker could have if yeah. questioned the co-worker said oh yeah he threw that knife at him and it didn't hit him or whatever or the father could say that but uh so that's like a big that's a big important plot point yeah which is even which is bigger in the silent movie yeah. because that's when the father is ultimately killed and in the silent movie um Conrad Veidt, uh Orlock in that movie believes that in a blackout he went and killed him yeah. so he's even like oh i did kill my father so he kind of questions it in this, too. Yeah, because he goes to find out what happened. Yeah. Um, so, uh, meanwhile, you have Laurie, who's still hanging out with the uh, with the wax figure, and he's and he's yeah. hearkening there's back a lot to this. Of, you know, there's a lot of little things that I don't think we really can go into. No. Us. We'd be he, here he's, forever. He's but there's a lot of little things to, with, like, his servant, who's a woman who's a drunk. With a, with, a with a parrot, parrot yeah. on her shoulder. And, uh, and she, she, she's... Uh, She's seen him. The, the workers bring the wax figure in, and he's calling. Uh, Lori's calling her the uh, the Galatina, which is like a Greek kind of a throwback to like of a, a, st- a figure or something, and and someone who like you know loved it so much it came to life. And he keeps calling it my my yeah, Galatia. You know, there's a there's a he tells this story at the beginning of the um, the Greek myth. Yeah, and so um, Ted Healy, the reporter, is kind of like. I forgot why, but he's he's kind of his suspicions are arose to like he gets why like word that like the the body's the being body moved, is the taken bot- to Orlock's house yeah and so he goes and it's a really funny subplot you know and this is like you said there's a lot of comedy in these movies yeah. even to like you know Bride of Frankenstein you know with the uh, the blind man or whatever or the uh, and it's always to the assist the the, the housekeepers or the house people are always drugs the service. <laughs> You know? Well, it's a, t- it's a tough job. It was a, t- it was a it's tough a thankless time. job. Yeah, it, it definitely. At that time, certainly was a thankless job. So Ted Healy like knocks on the door and he's like, you know, I'll, I'll ply you with alcohol, or he gives her he gives her a, a shitload of money. He's like, let me know what's going on, and and she confuses what he's saying about yeah, bringing. Like, I heard they brought in. the stiff in here. Yeah, so like, she hey, thinks it's upstairs. The, yeah, the wax figure. <laughs> so she's like, he's like, it's upstairs. He's like, yeah, he has it propped up, but he's it's in his room. And he, it's in his room. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, and, she, and he's uh, been, you know singing siren songs to it all night he has <laughs> is the head back on the head's always been on the head's back on so it's yeah, like he's like i don't know the head was on when it came in the head was on when he's coming so he's still alive well, what do you mean it's still alive so it's like it's, it's it becomes this back and forth so yeah, it's like a misunderstanding so i think uh gogled peter laurie's character is realizing that uh that stuff's going on that 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 you know the the, the merit marital strain between francis drake and um and uh, uh orlock is happening so he further wants to ax- uh, exacerbate it and maybe even put a wedge there because he's still Well, also the doctor, com- the Orlock comes to the doctor. He's like, there's something going on. What did you do with my hands? You know, like... Oh, uh, that's true. And he and he, and he, and he, he completely throws it aside saying... He's like, I like, can throw knives. <laughs> he's like, oh, you know what it is? He's saying it's... it's uh, He's saying it's a uh, psychological. It's a psychological uh, thing. Maybe you had some solid suppressed floor. Somebody yeah, throwing it's a repressed it memory. Cool. And back then he's like, oh, I guess you're right. Then maybe it was <laughs> some sort of suppressed memory. So he so he goes one step farther and he goes, listen, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go to this address and talk to this guy and he'll tell you everything. And um, we have uh, uh, Orlock's like, okay, and he and he goes to this address to to to, to go. He, what he thinks is gonna some 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 mysterious characters on a level with him, and he gets there, and I think I can say probably in maybe all of like that era of cinema, this is probably one of the scariest things. Certainly, 
when we watched it together. Oh, so yeah, Orla, yeah okay. So yeah. Orlock, te- uh, Gogol tells Orlock. Yeah, Peter Lorre tells him, he goes, listen, go to this address. There's going to be a yeah. guy who's going to level with you and tell you everything. Cause it, I, is, not- it is truly disturbing. And we didn't know, I don't think, going into that when we saw the movie. So it was a complete right turn for us. Yeah. Where a lot of times you know, like, oh, the payoff's going to be this. So if you... Uh, we're going to spoil this. So if you don't want to get the spoil, <laughs> you should turn this off, go watch the movie, and come back to tell what we're about to say because this is a true spoiler which is sad because if you haven't seen this we don't want to really want to spoil it for and you. we kind of suspect that a lot of you haven't seen this yeah so, so we 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 fully recommend we do not full want, disclosure we don't want to discourage you from listening to the podcast but we think it's more important you go see the movie before because you have to you. see it to yeah believe it, it is truly frightening okay ready okay <laughs> hopefully you're back with us or you've stuck it out and uh, okay it's your own fault now what we're gonna say so he goes into this room uh, and uh, I don't know. You want to describe what the hell he's this, this, what what uh, you've got? Uh, uh, Orlock sees this shadowy figure on the other side of the room. Yeah, and the it's guys like a bar or something, right? Yeah, like yeah. That's, it's like a tavern, and upstairs is is where he's going to meet this guy in yeah. the upstairs room. He goes to the upstairs room, which maybe it's like a B and B, and yeah. he goes upstairs, and uh, in the other side of the room, it's it's it, it's there's a guy. St- Sitting there with with he's got like a hat on he's he's got yeah, a trench he's got coat like he's got his big like fedora and like this big coat on and he's like got collar he's up. got kind of like round glasses which kind of look like sunglasses so you can't really see the face but you can see the reflections and uh, he's wearing these metallic arms that are yeah. like from the forearm up yeah and they they to me look a lot like either Fritz Lang's Metropolis robot girl yeah or even like Darth Vader. Yeah. You know, that kind of a thing. He's wearing these arms. Yeah. And he's whispering. He's like, you're here to, 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 to know the secret. And it doesn't even sound like it's Peter Lorre voicing. Yeah, yeah. You know, because you, you end up finding out it's Peter Lorre to f- completely make the guy go fucking insane. Yeah. But it's like, there's no accent. He's like, you know, you're here. I'm going to tell you. And he says he is the uh, knife. convict, knife thrower, knife thrower. Uh, Edward Brophy. And Orlock has been able to successfully reattach his head to his body. But so he's the condition... Wear, but he's, so he's wearing this big neck brace that goes like up like over his chin. Yeah, it's, it's actually pushing his chin up. It's almost like, like Ernest P. Worrell. Like it's, his, head, his head is resting on this neck plate. Yeah. And it's a very metallic... It's, it's yeah. a whole body kind of a thing where it's, it's very metallic with like these, these two like things holding it up they look like kind of like little pistons and he's it's his head's resting on that so it's very disfigured looking so he's forced to like have his head up really high and he what he basically tells him is like on the condition that i would be brought back to life i had to give my hands up to you yeah, yeah. so you you have my hands and i'm like i hope you enjoy them and then like you know he's like you're crazy and then the, like for the full exposure he comes into the to the light, light yeah. and you see the whole thing and you know he's he the doc. Uh, I keep saying Doctor Orlock's taken aback, and then yeah. the uh, the character starts laughing, and it's yeah, just yeah. really fucking. I mean, no wonder why this must have had people like kids fucking. I don't know if it's because like his head, his neck is stretched so far, but like his mouth even seems fucking weird in it. I don't know if it was like they, they, then we have, if they pulled if they put things that like opened his like pulled his mouth in a weird way. Oh like like Lon Chaney Sr. would yeah, do to yeah. like make his yeah to exaggerate the like the, the, the but opening. It's a very striking fucked up image. Even for now. I yeah. mean this is something still It's very in a way like maybe not the maybe not like the the metal hands and the neck brace but like um 
I don't know if there's. I'm not particularly. I mean, I don't dislike the movie, but I'm not like a huge diehard fan of the movie. Uh, Which one? Dark City. Oh yes. Okay. Yeah. Something yeah. about the imagery is very reminiscent of like the the figures in Dark City. It's and very. It, you know, Laurie. You know, we, we've set up that Laurie is like a this, this genius with with um with surgeries and stuff. And and at the time when he like kind of lets on to like he Luke his assistant that he's going to do this. That, you know, he looks like that's impossible. And he quotes Napoleon. He said because uh, uh, they're in France. He said Napoleon said the word impossible doesn't exist in French. And this is a very naive time you have to remember for people because this is prior to like I mean people were kind of having plastic surgeries at the time. But until people realized, I think, with transplants and uh, different blood types not matching up, that, you know, it's like, it's like the idea of Frankenstein. This could maybe, conceivably, if you were smart enough, you might be able to, to reattach or move heads around yeah. or arms. Well, obviously, you clearly, know. this scene is a throwback to the deleted scene that you brought up earlier. Yeah, well, that's, that's what I was, like, that's yeah, why that, I brought that's it up. That's probably the brace that, that he was use. wearing, that he's having, that, that you know, so, it, so people... You know, and even, um, you, you know, we're thinking Orlock might even think, well, he fucking transplanted my hands. What's to say he couldn't transplant the guy's head or, yeah, yeah. or just reattach the head for that matter? Yeah. So uh, he's like getting mad at this point. He's laughing. Ah, and then, uh, you know, uh, Orlock leaves like, oh, my God, it's a, it's a murder. I've and then because his father's killed at the same time. Yeah. And he's blaming him. It's like, you did it. You know, you killed, you used my hands to kill your father in some fit of rage yeah. that you blacked out on. <laughs> and then Orlock leaves in a fit. And then the, the figure goes and leaves and then goes back and we find out it's, it's, uh, it's Gogol, Peter Lorre. And at this point, I think Peter Lorre's like gone. I don't know why though, but he's like insane at this point. He's like, he's gone fucking insane. Well, he comes, he, I mean, all this plot comes about. It's like, basically, if I get orlock out of the picture i can uh, win over francis drake i can have the girl and uh because he's like who's he's obsessed with he's mad love yeah he's yeah he's yeah it's the whole point (laughs) the the whole the whole the whole uh subject of the of the 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 name of the movie and it and he says you know he's like you know i never knew the love of a woman nothing you know he never so he's trying and, and it gets to uh it gets so psychotic at this point because he's just trying and it and it outweighs everything where the part there's the scene where uh Remember where Orlock's about? To, oh, because she doesn't. He he come to her and he professes her love. His lo- after he, he did look what I did for your husband. Please, I love you. And this is what drives him over the edge. Maybe this is where this happens. Where he 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 it it's a catalyst to get him to do this event to drive uh, Orlock away. But he goes to the Francis Drake and he's like, I love you. Don't you think you can ever in any world see yourself? You know maybe growing some love for me she's like no you're you're a fucking ass you know she's kind of <laughs> she's kind of cold to him in all due respects yeah. and it fucks him up so much he's going back to like operate on this child yeah. and in the original script you know he's he so he goes in and he's like you know he starts getting faint and he's looking in the mirror and he's and he's looking at himself and he starts hearing her saying all these things and so he like practically like passes out and and, and key looks like holy shit and he's like take him out of here and in the original script which they change is the kid dies you know, but in the in the movie version, Key Luke takes over, and Key Luke performs the surgery, the assistant, and then like you know, at the end, it's like you know, uh, uh, Doctor of uh, Gogol, you you've done it again. My my kid will walk, or my kid's alive, and it's and it's because Key Luke did it. So, but yeah. at this point, I think that's really took him over the edge, and he's fucking gone at that point. Yeah. So I mean, you know, out of it's a crime of passion. I mean, he decides I'm gonna. He basically he kills the father. He kills Orlock's father. Yeah, to, to 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 pin it on him, and then to pin it on Orlock, and then also has does this meeting with Orlock where he's pretending to be the knife thrower to 
convince it's Orlock that he did it. Yeah, he has an alternate. With the hands came the alternate ego of Rolo, the 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 thief, and as well as the cops come to the scene, and the cops find fingerprints, and it's the fingerprints of the murderer. They're like they're like what the fuck? Yeah, of the knife thrower. And they're like, well, what happened to the body? And it doesn't matter. He says he did. Yeah, 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 yeah. Back then, it's like they didn't really care about. Yeah, it's it's, it's a bunch of bullshit. It's just like you know, fucking you know, uh, Lumithal, you know. So. uh at this point, she she sneaks into the house, and uh, I forget for what reason yeah, what she goes into. I can't remember why she goes. She goes into the house to figure something out to try to maybe to to to, to, to get evidence against it or whatever. And she gets in there and she gets up into his room and she and she sees the wax figure and she's like, "Oh my god, it, he's got my wax figure! What the fuck?" And I think she hides the wax figure and she tries to get out. Well, she tries to. And something she happens. She hear, the bird makes a noise or something. She knocks it over. Oh, and she it breaks. breaks. It. Yeah. So then she she goes and hides it, and then the the maid comes up. She the maid's up. Like, you don't really get it, but she opens the window, and you don't really get it till later. Is that she throws it out the window because you see the parts later in the movie? But at the moment, I'm like, what the fuck did she do with the? Oh, next so she, she she tosses it out the window. You don't realize that till the end shot. So the maid walks in, and the maid's freaking hammered at this point yeah. off the, the booze she bought from Ted Healy giving her the thing, and she's like so hammered. She's like, you're, you're not supposed to be. And so she's so gone, she's thinking the wax figure's fucking walking around because she's been seeing Peter Lorre talk to it. Oh, yeah, that's why she goes upstairs. Yeah, she's like, so you're you not gotta get upstairs. You gotta go back upstairs. And, all that. and then there's a throwback because we brought up the director. The director ended up directing The Mummy, and yeah. they brought a guy in, um, uh, uh, Ballstein, um, and he... he is the guy that they would come and fix up scripts and he did a whole bunch of scripts and he fixed up the script and he'd, he'd worked on um, John Bolenstein. He did the ad- adaptation of Dracula when it was brought to the American stage from London that made the movie and he contributed to The Bride of Frankenstein, Mummy, Mark of the Vampire and they'd worked together in the past. So the director, Carl Freud, Freund? Freund, yeah. Freund, I can never pronounce it right. He, they do a throwback as a joke to mummy because in the mummy she's the, someone says he he went out for a walk and that's the then she says the same thing to either Lori about the wax figure yeah well there's also a little one the other big deleted scene is there's an introduction to the movie that get that is not in the movie anymore which is a throwback to frankenstein which yeah. is a little bit because they did that much, in frankenstein they're like very much of like you know what you're about to see it's so <laughs> like fucking a, horrific it's like a warning yeah you better you better uh you know get better out wear of a now. diaper yeah and if you and go get your money out now or if not you know we warned you so uh she, they, she runs back upstairs peter Lorre comes home he's fucking insane at this point now it was a, it's like because he we see him as he walks in he starts as he walks in he's taken off this getup and he's talking to himself and it's yeah. hilarious he's talking to himself he that confesses. he's insane to himself and he's like he's he's, he's making himself more insane that he's like that i that just is- imagine like just imagine this guy walking down the street like laughing and talking to himself in this crazy fucking get up with the neck <laughs> and then people, I mean, people must have been fucking you know, horrified i know and and it, 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 hopefully didn't see him because there's another deleted scene earlier in the movie where he's walking down the street and he, he comes in contact with a blind person and he's like i i cured your blindness and the person's like well Blindness is my how I make a living. So it's like, oh, okay. So people must know him. So I yeah, guess when yeah. he's dressed up like this, people don't see. He gets home and he's yeah, he's, like, he's making himself more crazy by t- confessing to what he's done and all this stuff. So he goes up into to his to his office where the wax is, and so she just stands straight and she's the, and yeah. The, she pretends to be the wax statue. And we're hearkening back to the uh, to what we said, which we alluded to at earlier. the beginning, where she's now 
you know, as the so he starts playing the organ as all people who go mad in these movies start doing. You know, I'm gonna play you a thing, and he's looking at her in the mirror, and uh, he starts playing the fucking organ, and the bird comes back in. Oh, that's where the that's where she screams for the bird. Yeah, the bird comes she back in. The not, bird the, like the statue her. does fall. I don't remember why. She, she knocks into him. Maybe she's so yeah. horrified at it. So the bird comes back in and tries to land on her, and she screams, and it cuts her. Yeah. So Peter Lorre stops playing the piano or the organ. He turns around, walks back. He's like, "Oh, you can." You're, you're bleeding. bleeding. You're bleeding. And then he realized, and she she starts screaming. He's like, "You've come to life. It's alive. Yeah, started, I loved you so much that you you've come to life." Which and, is that myth that he yeah that the the the, uh, the uh, Galatea the Galatea. And then at the same time, the police are busting in because they realize, "Well, what did we do with the body? We gave it to Peter Laurie. Fuck! Why did you give it to Peter Laurie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so where's all, the body again? They all they all run over with Ted Healy and tell. They all they all go in there, and then at, at that th- that moment. Um, He's fucking crazy. They bust in. They run upstairs. They get to the to the door to his kind of like office, and it's one of these old doors where it has like a little thing you could open up the partition yeah. to look in, and it has like a you know I don't know why they have that in, inside the house. Yeah, but, but it, like it a little you, window. That yeah, you has can open like, like the door. window. It's like a little it, door in the door, in the door but and it's like a, it's covered by like a metal cage. Yeah, you know, yeah. you can't you can't put your hand. So in at this point, they're trying to call to him. He's not responding. He starts strangling her because I don't know why, just because he's crazy at this yeah, fucking yeah. point. And he's like getting off on it because he loves seeing, inflicting pain on her. So uh, freaking Orlock takes the knife he's had that was the knife throwers that killed his father that he picked up uh, imp- compulsively at the police station and put in his pocket uh, when they were interviewing him. Uh, he puts his hand through the door and he throws and he kills Peter. Hits him in the back and kills Peter Laurie. And, uh, you know, Peter Lorre dies in the last shot. And it's, it's like what you allude to. You see that on the street. There's the, um, the what do you call it? The uh, the wax figures. Yeah, well, I think ground. as they're running to the thing, they're like, there's, there she is. What's a Von, what's a, <laughs> what's a Von or, uh, Orlock doing on there? Oh, it's not. It's just the Mark It's just, it's just a, you know, oh, thank God. Now, I think, um, let, me, let me see. I mean, I guess this story, this idea of, like, the killer transplant business is like a recurring thing in movies. I mean, is there anything you want to say about them to button up this movie? Because I think it's interesting. Like you take a film like 1991's Body Parts. Yeah, so you complete with uh, Jeff Fay. Yeah. Well, you um, see it. It, it goes to because uh, it goes to my my uh, recommendation near the end. So I'll keep that quiet. Yeah. But you see that become a theme in quite a bit of movies. I, I guess I'd Hitchcock like to say does one that's a little bit uh, of a of a nod to this. Yeah. Which is also a piano player, I believe. Um. Uh, I think there's a story in the Carpenter produced body bags. With oh, I remember Mark that. Hamill. That yeah, is, that involves eyes. Um, in the in body parts though, uh, 1901's body parts. His arm is. I think there's a car accident and he loses his arm and he gets the he gets a new arm. Who that was a killer's arm. So yeah, there's this idea of this recurring, or it's even like the eye. Isn't that the same? With you see a lot of that. Like there's there's a earlier. Well, I was just movie. saying the body parts and uh, the the body bags. With Mark Hamill's his eyes, yeah, you see. And I think the Hitchcock thing is, I can't wish I could remember the name of it. I think yeah, he gets the victim's eyes. eyes, and you can see the killer on like the last thing on the retina. Um, well, this movie, well, I guess uh, I want to give a, a shout out to the composer Dimitri. Uh, oh, Tiamkin, yeah, Tiamkin, oh, because goodness. he he did the com- he did the music on this, and he went on to do um, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Meet John Doe, Shadow Without Hitchcock, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. He did a lot of stuff for Frank Capra. He's a, I mean, he's one of the great, and if you. Uh, if you talk to other uh, composers, composers yeah. he is like cited as like one of the great 
film music composers yeah. of all time. Even Carpenter was like, oh, man, I wish Tiamkin was still alive. Yeah, he he could have done my movies. Uh, he did a lot of Westerns, Red River. He did Champion, DOA, A Thing from Another World, the original, The Thing, uh, Strangers on a Train. He did High Noon, Dial in for Murder, Cyrano de Bergiac. He did uh, James And this uh, was James a really giant. early... Really early. From. This might have been one of his first. Uh, Gunfight, the OK Corral, Rio Bravo, Guns of Navarone, you know. So he he, he did a fair share of stuff. And uh, then, Dimitri Tampkin is one of the great. I mean, you would put him top 10, if not top 5. Yeah. Probably composers. top 5 film music composers. And a lot of his, it's interesting, as well as for like films like Gunfight, the OK Corral, and maybe even the Guns of Navarone or High Noon, his com- his compositions also turned into pop songs that yeah. were released, like with some, like say, like, you know, Freaking, what's his face singing them? You know, uh, uh, um, a crooner at the time that's big or something like a Ricky Nelson or something yeah, like yeah. that singing them. So uh, when this movie came out, it was banned in England, and it it, it ended up doing uh, the budget for this movie was was something like um, uh, like two hundred thousand dollars, and it only made domestically it made uh, one hundred seventy thousand, and then abroad it made one hundred ninety four thousand. So the the, the Studio actually lost thirty nine thousand on this movie, so it was kind of like, uh, yeah, it was kind of uh, branded a dud, and it wasn't necessarily well reviewed. No, everyone hated time. it. You know, it's aged well. Yeah, it's, but I mean, people more contemporary critics look back on it, and it gets reviewed much more favorably now than it did back in the thirties. Yeah, people, even though they they did say the movie was horrible, the reviews were. They did cite how amazing Peter Lorre was in it, and yeah. a lot of people raved about Peter Lorre, and as well as even Charlie Chaplin when he saw it, he said that Peter Lorre is the best working actor of all time. Yeah, seeing yeah. his performance in this movie, uh, but this movie, like I said, was banned in England, and then with along with The Raven, which came out I think a couple of years later, uh, maybe nineteen thirty six. Uh, around that time, they actually banned horror movies in England. Yeah, because of this movie, uh, because of this and the Raven, and then it they also had a real issue with it over there. Because then in the eighties, there was the whole video nasty. Yeah, yeah. So they had they have a whole issue of society. What you're seeing, and it also got to the point which where which is it, probably why Peeping Tom was such a you know the people bring back a little callback. Cause, yeah, because they're because it's they're, like, we, they're we don't very, do this kind of wound thing. a little too tight over there back then. Yeah, and. Uh, it even got to the point where it, it came over here because in 36, Universal stopped making horror movies for almost a decade. Yeah. Because of that, they, they, were th- they were thinking like, okay, this is a little too much. And then you, by that time, you're getting into the war by 30, 39, 39, you know, uh, Europe goes to war and we're not brought into 41. But you see a lot of the ramifications of it there. And uh, Laurie didn't really think uh, favorable of the film, which is sad. Um, you know, he... he um, he he liked himself in it, but he just thought it wasn't done well, you know, like that. Yeah, well, you know, it, it's it's, uh, it's sad. I could see that, you know. And he got pigeonholed. I mean, Francis Drake said, you know, the the actress in it. She said, you know, he was a very complex man. He 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 was very sympathetic, but he had a sad quality about him. He want uh, he wanted she, he wanted to meet her before he shaved his head, so he she wouldn't be scared of him. And uh, she, she said, my impression was that he was a very sensitive person, easily hurt, yeah. and. Uh, he had a really sad career because he went on. He started getting pigeonholed uh, in these movies. They started calling him like a very, uh, you know, he's one of the horror boys. But he was one of these guys that didn't need to put makeup on. Yeah. And he kind of got pigeonholed in, in these kind of horrific movies. And it really frustrated him because he wanted to do other things. And it wasn't until he went to Warner Brothers and he became friends with Humphrey Bogart 
that they uh, him and Walter Houston started putting him in those movies where yeah. you have uh, Maltese Falcon. He plays uh, Joe Cairo, uh, a gay guy, and it's freaking hilarious. Joe Cairo. Joe Cairo. I mean, he's he's <laughs> he's so good in that. And then he really plays up the homosexuality, which I never even really noticed at all. Yeah, yeah. And then he did a whole series of movies, like we said, Casablanca with with Humphrey Bogart. He does a maybe. Well, he's also, I mean, all I don't know. Why, I don't remember what year, but he also does Secret Agent with. You know, with he Hitchcock. goes back to well that after this. Uh, because of this was his debut, it wasn't really well received. He went back. He did Crime and Punishment, which again wasn't well received afterward. Yeah. So then he went back to England. He did with uh, Gilgood and Hitchcock. John Gilgood. He did. Um, he did Secret Agent, like thirty six or great, so. Great, great early British, Hitchcock movie. Uh, Hitchcock. Movie. Uh, and then Laurie did a couple movies with Sydney Greenstreet. They did. Ha- they had like an unofficial partnership. With, they did a lot of good movies. But then uh, he had a problem at the same time was he had a lot of gallbladder issues and he needed emergency gallbladder surgery at some point. I don't know if he got it removed or not, but because of it, he got addicted to, to morphine because at the time that would happen, you know, they would, they would give you morphine for the pain, but then they would never address you getting off of it. So it became to him, it was like clutch where he, he got this morphine addiction. And sadly in those days, uh, as opposed to treating it, like you have like a, an ailment, uh, certain the government would go after you as like you're a morphine addict we're gonna expose you so he went to jail and he was actually committed and went away and it was this big thing that like you know i do have you know he cleaned himself up for a certain point but then he fell back into it so that's why you see in these early roles in the 30s and 40s he's a thin guy but then when he starts really having issues of trying to kick the morphine habit you see like into late 40s and the 50s he gains a lot of weight and he becomes like an oversized guy and by that end he's starting to already do parodies of himself where he's on radio and film he's doing like you know kind of joking things we bring up warner brothers parodism in the cartoons and then he starts doing supporting roles he's in like Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea and various other movies he's in some early corman movies of like doing a ground poe and he dies like in i think 1964 in march uh sadly he just you know drops dead of a stroke uh there is a very interesting story before we get off of peter laurie well two things he there's a really weird story with him with uh the hillside stranglers you know you know where where years later after he passed away in 1977 there were these two guys kenneth bianchi and angelo bruno who from four months from 77 to 78 they were killing women in cal the california hills uh they ki- ended up killing 10 women and what they would do is they would dress up like cops and they pull women over like they're like un- as undercover cops and the, the women at the time were like okay you're police they flash a badge they get into their car and that's how they kill them so they pulled one night they pulled over a woman and they took her wallet and stuff, brought her into her car and they were looking at her wallet and she had a picture of Peter Laurie in the wallet of her and it actually turned out to be Peter Laurie's daughter at the time. She, uh, he died <laughs> at the time. Oh well, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> he died in 64. Yeah. She wasn't before that. <laughs> she became his daughter. Yeah. She, she was 17 when he died. And so at the time, this is what, like 15 years later, she's a little older, but she has a picture of her young with Peter Laurie, like hugging. And uh, I, th- I think the picture is online. We could put a link to it in the cast. But they saw the picture and they're like, shit, we like Peter Laurie. So they let her go. And this only came out after they got arrested. They confessed it to the cops. I'm like, yeah, we, Kathleen, we, uh, you know, we, 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 but we let her go because, you know, she's Peter Laurie's daughter. And she ended up dying at a young age, too. So it was very sad. She died, like, in the 80s uh, uh, of diabetes complications to that. So, uh, but, yeah, he had a really rough life, and it's just like a culmination of all those guys back then. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and I guess the lastly, I'm talking too much, but to, to button it up, I love, I've gotten into a, a huge, huge, I'm a fan of the old Charlie Chan and Mr. Moto movies, and I recommend anyone out there, go check out the early Charlie Chan and Mr. Moto movies. And Laurie played Mr. Moto. Uh, uh, he was trying to get out of the horror, so in the late 30s, he started doing these, these being this Japanese detective. 
And yeah. uh, they ended up stopping it because when the war started, they realized we can't do these because we can't have a, uh, a Japanese portrayed in a positive light. And at the time, Laurie was getting tired of it because he did like eight movies and they weren't really developing the character and he was kind he of also, getting typecast. But, yeah. He also portrays an Asian in like the Invisible Agent. Agent. Yeah, he's the sequel. He, Which he, is funny because it's like a very, it's a big World War II pick. But he's evil. all these British guys playing Germans. And then he plays it. And he then plays he an plays it. Well, I wonder if it's because <laughs> he's, he's, you know, because they didn't really didn't put any prosthetics on him. They just yeah. really just, you know, styled his hair differently and emphasized from his, you know, to be Asian because they, they never really tell you who Mr. Moto is. But... Uh, the reason why I bring up Mr. Moto, aside from it's there are a great series of films, that there is a movie called Mr. Moto's Gamble. And what's really cool is that the first Charlie Chan, who was uh, Warner Oland, he was having complications and the, he was going to do his last Mr. Uh, Charlie Chan picture, but he fell ill and he, he kind of had like a nervous breakdown and went away. And they're like in pre-production. They're like, what the hell are we going to do? And in those movies, Key Luke played number one son, his son. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're like... What do we do? Fuck it. We'll turn it into a Mr. Moto movie. So they just grab Mr. Moto, uh, Peter Lorre. They, they change the script around, and they put him in the, in the form of, of the Charlie Chan. And there's a little homage where, uh, you know, uh, I'm watching this, and I completely don't know the connection. And all of a sudden, Mr. Moto, and I'm watching him in chronological orders. Key Luke shows up. And I'm like, holy shit, it's Key Luke showing up in a Mr. Moto movie. That's really cool. And it would really cool if they referenced each other. And then, like, at the end of the opening scene, uh, Mr. Moto's like, how's your father, Charlie, doing? And he's like, oh, uh, Charlie Chan's doing great in Hawaii. He's like, well, give him my regards. I was like, oh, that's <laughs> fucking awesome. So they make a kind of, like, comparison. I guess they were friends, and that's a throwback because they're both in this movie together. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Key Luke... Ends up doing a lot of voice work. Uh, he's in a lot of Hanna Barbera stuff. They did all well, that. I mean, you know, just taking the count, we're talking about 1935. I mean, he's fucking young as hell. He's young as hell, and you know, there's Asians still get a lot of. Yeah, they were. I mean, a they had. They're having a lot of white actors. Yeah, play play well, Asians, and here we have a guy who's actually Asian playing an Asian. I mean, it, it's 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 unique and rare. Yeah. You know, to, to to not having it be like you know in blackface or what they call the yellow face, and to. to Reference this box set again. This was in the Hollywood Legends of Horror. This comes with a great, all the movies, Dr. X, which is a Lionel Atwell movie. And Lionel Atwell, it's interesting. He, I think, was on his way to be one of these iconic horror icons, but he had this huge, he's in a lot of early, he's in the Wax Museum movie, Horrors of the Wax Museum, maybe, that was remade into House of Wax with Vincent Price. Uh And he's in a lot of horrific movies at the time. But he had some sort of scandal where he, like, raped a girl, but he got off the hook because they, brushed it under the carpet but Hollywood kind of like blacklisted him so because of that people don't really know who he is Uh, The Devil Doll with Lionel Barrymore is uh, in this box set Mark of the Vampire which we alluded to earlier which is maybe the only other movie where Bela Lugosi dresses up as a vampire but there's a uh, ending that I think a lot of horror people that are fans really are pissed about the kind of uh, I don't know. I just remember there's a giant bat, which is uh, fucking crazy. Yeah, it's, it's all kinds <laughs> it's of. Really and, there's cool. a, and there's a lot of weird things with his daughter's a vampire in it too. And yeah, there's like yeah. a lot of like suggestions that there's an incestual relationship in it yeah. as well. Uh, there's Return of Doctor X is in this movie, which is a sequel to Doctor X, which is really not really a sequel, but they build it that way. And it's the only movie Humphrey Bogart made that's a horror movie, and he plays the lead in that. And lastly, there is a movie, The Mask of Fu Manchu, in this, where it's Boris Karloff, like you're saying, getting into yellow face to play. Uh, Fu Manchu, and it's only because uh, Warner Olin at the time, at the in the early 30s, was doing Fu Manchu, and he did two or three Fu Manchu movies. And the second, the sequel to the Fu Manchu, the, I think it's like The Return, to me is like one of the best sequels of all time. I have all three of them, and it's like freaking up there with either Empire Strikes Back or Godfather <laughs> yeah. Two. But anyway, when he got the role of Charlie Chan, he stopped doing those because he was, you know, he can't be putting out 
where he's disparaging, you know, in, uh, Chinese people as this evil Fu Manchu and then be this pro yeah, yeah. Chinese in, in Charlie Chan. So then that's why Boris Karloff got the role and he did this movie. So it's a really neat box set, and it's like only like ten bucks. Yeah, you can get this maybe movie even on. less now. You know, and they're all remastered. There's an audio commentary on this, so it's really cool. Uh, and that's all I have to say about Peter Lorre. That was a lot. Right, it was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, as you know, we have a new segment that we, we've introduced in, the, in our in our new year uh, since we celebrated our one year anniversary with uh, an epic Batman '89 cast. And now it was freaking epic. And now we've we've done the Blob as the first installment of our. Um, Horror month of our horror, our month of horror, and then our, and then year one. We're are we past year one? This is this is like we're year now one. into year two. Yeah. So this is we've entered, we've now, you know, we give recommendations for uh, other movies. If you wanted to put together, as we say, we curate the perfect movie sleepover. If yeah. you wanted to watch something, uh, some movies in conjunction with Mad Love, nineteen thirty-five. Yeah, we try to go for like an angle where you're if you're doing a sleepover, we're figuring if you're going to do. The whole element here is we have to do a triple feature because we're talking about one movie and then Blake and I are going to pick one so that you got three movies. And we figure you're maybe going to go with some sort of theme, right? <laughs> Sometimes you go balls out and you do all kind of, you're just going to do horror generic or whatever and you get just horror movies. But we try to, I guess, kind of stay within the parameters of you doing like a theme and we try yeah, to work yeah. them together. Like even I think with the last cast we did the uh blob cast we actually t- said the best order we thought it was for them to go in uh but well, there was a tie there was a tie-in yeah you know? so there, there was, was like, like how how it would flow what the best flow would be uh so uh we, so we do recommendations so uh what's your recommendation well for we a- talked about it earlier and you know I, I don't even know if i'd reckon necessarily re- uh recommend it as a sleepover movie but i feel like it's such an important movie that Full stop. If you haven't seen it, you really should, which is Fritz Lang's M, which we kind of talked about earlier. But we didn't want to get into the details. We didn't want to get into the details, and I won't get too far into details. came out in 1931. It's in German, so I know it's going to be a little trying for some of you. Well, Um, I mean, it's not. You don't have to decipher it. There's (laughs) subtitles, so it's not that Uh, bad. But still, um, in a nutshell, basically, there is this uh, child killer on the loose, and the cops can't find him. And then all the other criminals in town, they get together. Well, they get so pissed because since the cops can't find them, the cops start really breathing down the necks of the crime world. And then so now the criminals realize they can't really do their day-to-day criminality because the cops are all over us. For that this. and the, the crime that he's committing is... He's killing children. Is, and it's, he's killing just little girls as well on yeah, top of that. is like unacceptable. And it's know? a pretty cool thing, too, where you hear... You don't really know who it is yet, but you always hear uh, he the person whistles in the hall of the Mountain King. Yeah. So when he comes in, you hear like, you know, uh, and you know that's kind of him. And then he kind of like, he'll buy a balloon. He'll get the, the kid and he's like, hey, you want a balloon? Yeah. And then he'll take him away. And then you don't really necessarily see the murder, but you just then see the balloon yeah. float away. Yeah, yeah. You know, and maybe get stuck in the power lines or something crazy, but you yeah, realize yeah. that's symbolic, that that's the spirit of the kid. The kid's dead. Now. So the criminals, they organize, they get together as a committee, and they say, look, we got to stop this shit. Yeah, we can't fucking do our own criminality here. So, like, the cops aren't going to stop them. We got to stop them, and that way that'll get the cops off our back. So they go kind of on the hunt, keeping their eyes out. Yeah. And then at some point, they see him yeah they really they they, they 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 figure it out and we don't want to give you the the uh uh the hook because you know you have to go see the movie but there is it it is a reference because they 
to, to, to once they figure out it's Peter Lorre. Yeah, and when I say the, the movie M, it's literally just the letter yeah, M. Because once they figure out it's Peter Lorre, so they don't lose him in a crowd, they're able to, uh, one guy writes on his, with a piece of chalk on his glove, M, and he, he taps Peter Lorre on the back. So he so stamps him with the letter M, M on his shoulder. So Peter Lorre starts trying to get away, and he doesn't realize it's on his back. And then if people who are our age will go back in your, 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 your head and re- remember MTV... That was they used to have a little bump in and out with that, where it's like uh, instead of having M Peter Lorre on his back, would have MTV, and it's like a little loop where he's like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> and that was that was what it was from. It was from M. Yeah. So it's M for murderer, you know. And then there's a, uh, a climactic scene where they they the, the criminals take him, and they're like, what are we gonna do with him? And they're like, well, we'll do what they do to us. They we're try. Gonna, we're gonna put him on trial. Yeah. And it, and they they set it up. It's 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 really interesting. They set it up just like a court, and there's someone gonna who's just gonna defend him. Yeah. And uh, Peter Lorre testifies, and yeah. it's one of the most compelling and amazing like monologues. Where it's yeah. like, I think it's one of the first movies to deal with the serial killer, the psychology that like it's not monsters yeah, yeah. are sometimes inside of us, and also he's trying to get across that it's not my fault. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, totally, it's, and it's the kind of thing where you're seeing it in German and you're reading in the subtitles, and sometimes there can be a disconnect in performance from reading it. And soaking in and actually getting the performance, but it totally transcends that that gap because yeah, he's so and you good. just get totally pulled in. Yeah. He's so powerful. He's like I can't help so it. He's, engaging. Like, you know, he's, like, he's like it's not my fault. It's like I'm compelled. It's a sickness inside so of me. So it's uh, it's great. You know, it's you know, it's not it's a, it was it's not your typical sleepover fare, but it's such a great movie, such an important movie that it's more of a recommendation of you should just see this movie if you haven't yet. Yeah, it, it, I think it's such a, 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 even though it is a foreign movie, it's German Fritz Lang, uh, who also did Metropolis and was friends with Peter Lorre. But it's, it's just such a, it's a, it's such a, uh, a pillar in, along with universal horror movies of horror. Such know? a great movie. You're, what's your pick? Uh, we're, we're, I'm staying with Peter Lorre, my man. Oh, the P- Peter Lorre triple feature. Yeah, triple feature here. I'm, I'm doing uh, a 1946 movie called The Beast with Five Fingers, which is based off a short story by W.F. Harvey. And I only came into this because I was in England in Haworth, which is a uh, town where the Brontes are from. And I walked into a, a bookstore that kind of they kind of like cater like dark arts if you want to cast spells and shit. And they had this guy, a book of these short stories by this guy who's been out of print for all these years. And I picked the book up I think the book came out in 2005 and this was the name of the book and the first story and I looked into it and it's a Peter Lorre movie and it, it's from Warner Brothers 1946 it's the only movie Warner did of the decade that was a horror movie and it's basically about Peter Lorre and um, there's a one-armed piano player yet again funny enough he dies the hand gets cut off and uh, the hand it becomes this psychological thing where I think it was very much taken and put into the Adams Family movies later on where the hand is alive, yeah. and the hand is 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 going after him, and it becomes the beast with the five fingers. And it, you don't realize is it all on his head, or is it really a supernatural where the, the the hand is trying to kill him, and he's he's fucking nailing it to like a fucking <laughs> board to make it move, put it <laughs> a in little a, Evil Dead. Two. Yeah, yeah, it's very yeah, it's very it's right out of Evil Dead Two. It's this is this is uh, Evil Dead Two must be doing a direct homage to this, and he's sticking it into a vault, and he's going insane, and it gets out. The housekeeper's like, oh, I had to open clean the vault, and it's like, no, you know, and the thing's running around. It's very spooky. You can get it. Uh, it's very readily available. He he does a uh, he does a, a very 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 great performance in it, and it's just 
I guess we can button this whole cast up with like uh, you know our love for Peter Lorre. You know, people people may not even know who he is, and if you do know who he is, you may just think of oh, it's that guy with the bulgy eyes who yeah, just yeah. has that talks like niece. You know, but he's such a phenomenal fucking actor. I don't know how you and I even got on to. Maybe Maltese Falcon maybe was the catalyst of his Maltese Joe Maltese Falcon. Um, we also Dion and I have a. a we have a thing that started where we do impressions, and but they're all like dead actor impressions. Yeah, we're, we're, so we would start doing uh, Peter Lorre, James Peter Mason, Lorre, Cary Grant, James Mason. Duh, we'd come up with Sean Connery. weird scenario. Yeah, and, and it's it's uh, we have we, we've come up with a com- a comedy routine that would only work like on a convalescent home circuit. <laughs> yeah, we go, you know, we go to, we go to the homes. old people home circuit. And we, then, we would kill. We kill but anywhere there. else if, if they're if they're still with it, then they know what we're talking about. We would kill. And uh, yeah, we just scenarios of like. James Mason, Peter Lorre, and like uh, Cary Grant in a car, <laughs> and they pick Jimmy Stewart up, and they're all in a car. The original, we came up with an original. Uh, oh, the original fucking Doctor, Doctor no, no, like a directed by Alfred Hitchcock, starring Cary uh, Grant. Because originally we're getting so much off on a tangent, but originally like uh, Ian Fleming based the the character on Cary Grant, but he was too old yeah. by that point. So we thought of like, what happened if there was a a movie that never got made? Yeah. What if like Hitch, before Hitch, before Doctor No got made with Sean Connery, yeah. if there was an attempt to make it first in the in the early fifties or around, maybe around like uh, North by Northwest, where Hitch options the movie and and they do Doctor No and it's freaking. Uh, Cary Grant as James, uh, uh, Cary Grant as uh, James Bond. You, I think you had we had we had James Mason as Doctor No, as Doctor No. He's and like, then we had that, Peter Lorre as a henchman, and for some reason we had this thing where Vincent Price would come to set. Vincent Price <laughs> and Sean Connery was there. No, 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 no before Connery, it was but he was like on set. Wasn't no, he? it was Vincent Price and Jimmy Stewart would come to set oh, just yeah, to yeah. eat oh, at the craft. What's going on here? Just to eat at the craft services table. But we had this thing where for some reason Peter Lorre hated Cary Grant. Yeah, he because he kept upstaging him and then. <laughs> And then we, we also did this thing where James Mason was was a real douchebag. He came off as this refined gentleman, but he would he would pick fights while they were doing and just piss off. He'd piss Peter Lorre off, and Peter Lorre would take his anger out on, on Cary Grant. Yeah, yeah. And then the whole time, Hitchcock would just let it roll. Let, let, it, roll. let it roll. Let it roll so that he can catch, capture the magic. And that's our, anyway, in our demented heads. Complete crazy tangent yeah that's so uh, um love for Cary grant and for peter lord <laughs> all th- and then you know what you want to uh, you know t- since it's halloween time another halloween movie which is actually is a comedy you want to go see the two of them together in a movie they're fucking great arsenic and old lace yeah takes place halloween time uh it's a frank copper movie which we were just talking about frank copper um the two of them in it, it is literally it's fucking hilarious it's based off a stage play Frank Capper did it. They shot the movie, and then they realized that they they they, they couldn't release the movie until the, the play was off of Broadway because no one would want to go see the movie. Or no one, no one would want to go pay to see it on Broadway if there was a movie out. So they had to yeah. wait till the movie was done on Broadway, and then once it was done, they put it out like a year later. Uh, phenomenal movie, which maybe we'd end up doing sometime, but it's a very... Yeah, it is one. It's a special one for us because of that connection. Yeah, because of the Peter Lorre Cary Grant. And I think it's, it's probably one of the most underrated uh, Cary Grant performances because he completely... Overacts, but it perfectly suits oh, yeah. the movie, and it's, it's a cartoon. It it, it, it's, and so it's great. great. And Peter Lorre is such so good in it. He's so funny. Uh, and there's a lot of send ups to the to this Universal era. Yeah. You know, there's a Karloff. Yeah, there's friends. a yeah, and the play also. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's part of the it's yeah, part of the story. It, I mean, the, the you know the story is uh, Lorre is a drunk surgeon, and he he hooks up with this serial killer, and the serial killer needs his face to be changed because you know people are recognizing him. But the night when Lorre's gonna you know, do the surgery and change his face. He gets drunk and goes, he's freaking 
Frankenstein with Boris Karloff. So he goes home, comes home drunk, and he turns uh, who ends up being Raymond Massey's face into Boris Karloff. So everybody thinks it's fucking Boris Karloff, which is ingenious because you know what they did was in the stage version they actually cast fucking Boris Karloff in the role. <laughs> so it's like, and it wasn't Peter Lorre, I don't think. But so, and then what, what happens is that the the serial killer's brother is Cary Grant, and Cary Grant's coming home for the weekend to visit his aunts and. Um, they're killing people as well yeah, in, in Brooklyn in this house. And the serial killer shows up. So there's huge craziness in this anyway. house over a night. So go check that digress. out. As we always do. Uh, Arsenic and Old Lace. Phenomenal movie. Uh, uh, charge. So uh, we want to uh, promote some stuff. But I also want to make a special mention that, you know, a lot of people who are listening to us are, are fans who we love and adore. Thank you so much, one, for listening. It's very humbling to, yes. to to think that actually you're taking the time listening to two schmoes just talk about movies. Yeah. You know, we don't know anything more than you do. So thank you so much for listening to us. Thank you for those who write in and offer recommendations as well as just a comment. Yeah, just to you say know, thanks, that's which is fucking amazing. awesome. I mean, like you're actually taking the time out of like maybe taking a shit and you're like, I'm going <laughs> to, you know, on my iPad, yeah, I'm going to uh, let me, let me just, say, tell these two fuckos. I got a couple of minutes. Yeah, I'm going to tell these fuckos I like them. Thank you. But uh, a lot of uh, newer fans or maybe getting us off of like iTunes or Player FM or Stitcher, or Stitcher where we're at. Uh, we have a, a regular site, SaturdaySleepovers.Podwits.com. You can just search us on Google, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. And Podwits is exactly how it sounds, P-O-D-W-I-T-S. Yeah, it, it's a sister site, Podwits.com, which I'm, I'm a part of. You can check my stuff out there, the podcast I do. But my point of bringing this all up is check out our, our site itself because a lot of people may not know that we always have Every one of the podcasts in the posting that we offer, we do a bunch of extras. And a yeah. lot of these extras may just be links to YouTube, say deleted scenes or stories that we think are relevant or related. But a lot of stuff, too, are, are, are special exclusives that I know it sounds stupid or funny, but they're only exclusive to our site. A lot of art, you know, uh, yeah. we have the Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers has a huge ar- archive of, of comic of, book and, and, and original and movie art. I mean, you can, John Carpenter's The Thing, we have, uh, uh, we have pictures of... Uh, original storyboard plug the Mike plug the, the, storyboard art that was made for the movie we that, have that images we, that, that we have that we've only accumulated. ours you know so that you know you can see stuff like that there we have um for the for the if you guys just listen to the Batman post uh extra uh, two of the extras there is we have a, a great Bob Kane original piece of art of, of Batman yeah. and Robin and we also have a Batman Scooby Doo as well uh, in an interview with him um Bob Singer He's a Hanna-Barbera artist. Big deal. So we have a lot of exclusives that we just want you to just, you know, take a moment and go check the site out, you know, patronize the site and look to see because we try to put like a lot of yeah. stuff on and there. Even it's if fun. It's, and even if it's not a directly exclusive, it's fun stuff that, you know, we think it's like little bonus material. Yeah. It's that little, it's that extra disc. Yeah. It's, 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 it's <laughs> bonus features. So, uh, you know, if you just get us from a news aggregate or one of those sites, just, you know, Go, uh, you know, go have a mosey over the site. Have a minute. Take a look, and you, you know, click on a couple of links. You might, you might be find stuff that's kind of uh, up your alley. Yeah, it might be right, right up your ass. So uh, that's all. And In addition, uh, you know, Facebook is very. We've been, we've been accumulating quite a, a great community yeah. of movie lovers, sleepover lovers, <laughs> sleepover yeah. movie sleepover lovers on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're 
at Sat Sleepovers on Twitter. You can tweet us and we'll tweet you back. And, you know, please uh, share our links, recommend us to friends, uh, favor our tweets. Yeah, subscribe on iTunes, uh, review us on things like iTunes and yeah, Stitcher. Yeah, uh, Podroid, Stitcher, Player FM. Pod Bay, I think, uh, yeah. is another one that we popped up on. A whole, whole a lunch, a bunch of other things. As well as, like we said, um, you go to our web uh, website, uh, SaturdaySleepovers.Podwits.com. You can uh, download us directly from there, or you can just play stream it right from there you don't even have to download yeah. that thing and I should say that like a lot of our new listeners are coming to us from F This Movie which is a great podcast yeah to give a shout um, out to them they've been uh, really great about plugging us and stuff so yeah. it's great to have uh, some friends in the podcasting movie yeah. podcasting community and we welcome all their listeners hope you guys are enjoying our show yeah so uh, thank you very much for listening uh, we hope you're enjoying our month of uh, October 2015 month of horror this is the second in our in our uh, big tour de force that we're doing <laughs> and uh, you know please uh, keep listening and uh, we have a lot of good things to come so uh, we'll see you really soon later This is basic civil defense information from the Department of Defense, Office of Civil Defense, Washington. If you receive warning of an enemy attack, get to the nearest fallout shelter promptly. But if you're caught in the open and there's a brilliant nuclear flash in the distance, take cover immediately. Even miles away, you may be exposed within seconds to a searing heat wave from the explosion, followed by a blast wave and flying debris. Get into the nearest building immediately or into a ditch or culvert beneath a parked car behind a tree or a wall, anything solid that will give you some measure of protection.